Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a cinematic episode. Cinematic, cinematic. episode of Nerdy Show. I, I like it, that. I'm recover one. for you. That was a yeah, long. Yeah, I was day. trying to figure out what the. What... <laughs> Hi, I'm Hex. I'm Cap. Colin, and this is the first in a, a series of Nerdy Show episodes. We're going to be doing about prograde fan films, fan filmmakers who really uh, kick it up a notch, take it to the next level. A bunch of tired phrases. I'll just be spitting them out all night. <laughs> We're going to be talking with filmmakers who are just starting out and want to show some fan love and use pop culture as a platform to build their craft on. And we've seen this just in the in the short life of Nerdy Show, we've seen this genre of film go from something... I mean, it's always been around. It's been around for a long time, and we'll have the opportunity to talk about legacy in the future on this episode and also in future episodes. It's really hitting a high point right now. We've never... It may, mainly due to what we can accomplish with computers, but also just ingenuity and so on. The market for fan films, what fan films actually represent to corporations and so on. We've seen the concept of the fan film grow into something much more than it used to be. And we've been talking about this for ages, actually, getting fan filmmakers on the show and going on about, you know, developing the fan films and, and what that means and future projects and everything. So we're finally doing it. We're finally having an episode. This first episode in, in a, a series, which is not going to be coming out in a regular interval, so just don't... Don't, don't expect I mean, it. Yeah, but, it, it, but I mean, but ex- expect it. Like but don't, don't be like, yo, two months have gone by. Where's... <laughs> you, you know, like everything that we do. <laughs> right. D- expect it, but don't... 
expect it yeah because <laughs> yeah, we're scheduled we are ninjas yeah. and we will come at you when we feel like it yeah <laughs> there's always going to be something coming out on a thursday yeah yes. what what is it going to be anybody's guess it's a surprise we, got the, we have the wheel of releases and we just spin it around and <laughs> this is a really special episode for me because we're going to be talking about ninja turtles we did an episode back in season two called tmnt r.i.p when mirage sold all the rights to the turtles and everything to do with the turtles ever fire sale everything <laughs> must go to uh to paramount and nickelodeon and since then, we've seen a lot of interesting developments. Next year, we're getting a feature film, potentially, anyway. I mean, it keeps getting bad around. I don't really know what's going on with it. But then also a uh, cartoon show on Nickelodeon. And the last couple months, we've seen a brand new Ninja Turtles comic coming out through IDW. And we're going to see the reprints and re-releases of the original Mirage TMNT line. Mirage, right before they sold all the, the properties to Nickelodeon, they did this once. They released one one volume and a, and a very relatively small print run for something in as high demand as the original original Ninja Turtle series, and so it's impossible to find. It's sold out immediately, and uh, you can't get it anymore. And now, through IDW, they're going to be printing all the stuff that Mirage printed, so you can get it, and beyond, because Mirage didn't even, they just, that was volume one, and there was never volume two, and there's quite a bit more to come out. Are they going to be releasing stuff that hasn't been released ever, or is it just they're releasing, hard to find stuff? They will be releasing stuff that has never been collected, ever. Okay. Uh, it's, Easily findable single issues if you're you know if you're hunting through the bins and scouring online and so on. So if you're cap doable, yeah. But before we tumble down the manhole too far. Uh, oh right, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. We played a track, didn't we? <laughs> we did. Uh, Jay, the J. Arthur Keynes Band just released a new album on Eight uh, Bit People, an amazing location on the internet webs for chip tunes, and this the track we just played was Cluck. It's a fun and short chip tuny track that the J. Arthur Keynes Keynes band, which has been around for a bit, they emphasize that they are a chip tunes pop band. Hmm. And so uh like IFD, I Fight Dragons? Uh, ish. Except it's just one guy. Hmm, okay. And so it's an interesting take. This is uh, the first one of the first releases of theirs that has a heavy emphasis on vocals. The track I chose did not have vocals because it was actually the track I liked the most. <laughs> Not that I didn't like the vocals. I just thought this was a fun track to start with. Yeah. So I guess back to Ninja Turtles. Thank you, Hex. Sorry about rushing ahead. No, it's um, okay. I don't mind. Uh, IDW started a new Ninja Turtles series where they have their, their own unique continuity. It's based on the original Mirage work and feel, but it's a, its own continuity. It has a completely different origin story, actually. That's ongoing right now. There's going to be some miniseries. Tristan Jones, who worked with Mirage, is actually coming back to do some art on some stuff, uh, which is really cool. IDW also has a Ghostbusters book out right now that Tristan's working on and it's crazy good. I haven't been into the Ghostbusters series prior, but this one is really wonderful. So I just wanted to plug that real quick. Awesome. Reason we're talking about Ninja Turtles on this uh, on this episode is we're going to be talking with Polaris Banks, who is the writer and director of a Casey Jones fan film. And this thing was I mean, when I saw it, like there's been a, a trailer online for years and well maybe just a year. I don't know, it's it's been a while. This thing came out in September and holy shit, I mean, it looks great. And it is very, very, very rooted in the greatest outside the comics medium representation of Ninja Turtles ever, which is Steve Barron's 1990 Ninja Turtles film. Yeah. It riffs off of that very much. It's stylistic and it interprets Ninja Turtles in reality in the same way that Barron did it. Yeah. um, I mean, art direction wise, I mean, a lot of the, I mean, the music. 
alone. Oh, yeah. I mean, how... What was the composer? Yeah, the composer's name is Zane Effendi. He's actually a guy who's working in the film industry quite a bit. There's some actual notes of John Dupree's original Ninja Turtle score in there. You can you can hear them in, in instances. It's an homage to Barron's work and so on. So I thought it would be appropriate if we actually got Steve Barron on the show. Oh, shit. That'd be, uh, that'd be really impressive if we could do that. Oh, well, yeah, so we got Steve Barron on the show, which oh, is great. Oh, shit. Oh, man. This is uh, something I've been wanting to talk with Steve Barron for a long time. Uh, we're also going to be bringing on the show uh, my friend Nick Jade, who uh, is the guy who I started my first blog with, Media Potluck. He and I are huge fans of the Ninja Turtles film. We followed all the releases and tracked down, like, you know, screenshots of uh, deleted scenes and everything. We got... We got questions, basically. Like, we, <laughs> If you've listened to Nerdy Show for any duration of time, you may know how we feel about the original Ninja Turtles film, and it's not just me. But as a, as, yeah. as a collective group, we all really love that film. Yeah. What uh, are you talking about? The third one's the best. Sh- shut up. <laughs> shut your damn mouth. No, they go to feudal Japan. It, it, see, I actually I feel I it's better than the second one. how much I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the, but the costumes just get progressively better as the, as the films go on. Don't you feel like they get... <laughs> They get they get shinier and like they and, have and their eyes less, get derpier. Yeah, yeah, and they have less articulation. That's what I want. I'm uh yeah. I look forward to stabbing you after the recording. That's what I want. That's what I, that's what I want. I look forward to stabbing you during the recording. <laughs> well, I'm gonna tell him. I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna tell mm-hmm. Steve Barron how much I like the third one better. You, mm, he did. <laughs> just, he just directed the first one. The only good one. That's well, what he did. I, I'm gonna say that I like the third one better than I liked his movie. You're such a butthole. <laughs> I personally feel, I guess I can't speak for all of us now, but I personally feel that, that Ninja Turtles is actually... Yeah, you um, speak for all those that count. Yeah. Aww, <laughs> all those that bitch. matter. The Ninja Turtles film was actually uh, the best comic book adaptation that there's ever been, and it's uh, one of the best superhero films ever made. I agree with that one. I can't argue. If you adapt something to the screen, there has to be changes. There has to be differences. I guess Watchmen really proved that, you know, that there needs to be... And Watchmen was, you know, there's great, many great things about Watchmen, but yeah. as a film, it didn't work. Right, because but, you can't follow too closely to the comic could being scared of what the fanboys are going to say. You yeah. have to, you know, you have to have some, you have to take the material in some artistic direction as opposed to just using the comic book as a script. Yeah, and the uh, the Turtles film uh, elegantly took many, many issues and, and plot threads and respun them into a really uh, singular story. I mean, it's it's brilliant. It. What's more, it was the first time anyone had ever seen animatronics applied to, like, I mean, either it seems like Labyrinth and so on, but but it was really the first time that these creatures really came alive in that way. It was what Hanson had been working towards for years, and then boom, it happened with Ninja Turtles right. in a way that was completely unprecedented. Right. It was amazing how how flawlessly they moved in. They they fit in with the world. Yeah. We see stuff like Labyrinth, where it's like it's it's a person in this world, and all the Muppets, all the puppets, feel. Like they're a part of that world. Yeah, they belong to that world. Jennifer Connelly doesn't belong to that world, but Hoggle does. <laughs> right, right. But they felt like they did belong. Yeah. In... The turtles were the direct inverse of that. Right. Yeah, and it's a it's a testament to Baron's directing that he was able to like pull that off. It's really incredible. Yeah. So we're gonna be talking about that a lot more. I guess we should dive in and t- talk about just the the fan film genre in general. In two thousand three, around there, early two thousands. I stumbled across this awesome fan movie online called Batman Dead End. Have you guys heard of that? No. Yes. Is that the... That's. It's not just a Batman fan no, film, right? No, it isn't. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. Is this the one with the, the really awesome other cool stuff? It has a predator yes. and an alien yeah, in it. Yeah, the other cool yes. stuff in it? Yeah. Yes. 
basically Batman is chasing a hood and then all of a sudden a predator kills it. No, he's chasing the Joker. The oh, Joker show that it's about the yeah, the Joker's in there. And the guy who actually plays the Joker does a pretty decent oh, job. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then a predator kills him. And yep. then an alien yep. kills the predator and then Batman kills the alien. Which prompted my best friend Bob and I to play a game of a derivation of Rock Scissors Paper that are on end called Batman Predator Alien. <laughs> <laughs> but wait a minute, but what but Batman wins. No, then then the, the Predators were on their way to kick Batman's, Batman's ass. ass. Oh. Okay. And then the aliens came and inadvertently saved Batman. So how would you hold your what I mean like what would you do with your hands to to indicate Batman? Well, Batman is, is the, the horns. It's the horns, okay. Um three is the Predator. Why is it three? Because it's the, you know, when the Predators have those, that laser lock on Oh, you. nice. Okay, so the three laser beams. Okay. Yeah, and then just like, like, the, like the a alien. claw. So it's the ma- or the mouth. The claw for the alien mouth. Nice. Okay, so, all right, go home and play that game. <laughs> <laughs> Impress your friends. Yeah. And, and on a similar note, there was uh, Patient J, which was a, uh, a fan film focusing just on the Joker. And it was apparently him during Arkham. Uh, psychiatric reviews mm-hmm. it was from the point of view of the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist was progressively more and more spiraling into the joker's insanity and it was it was really well done and the, yeah. jo- the guy they played had played the joker was spot on yeah there were also uh, fan films like troops which is a i remember the oh troops the, that's like going a little bit a little bit earlier the uh, oh, mashup yeah. between um Clerks, Cop, well, and it's cops, and, yeah, and cops, cops, and, yeah. And it was there was trooper clerks. That's the yeah, trooper, trooper, trooper clerks, clerks. And, and then, then troops, which is yeah, yeah. And it was yeah, it was man, that's complicated. But um, uh, they, they came out about the same time. But yeah, trooper clerks was the the matchup of Star Wars and Clerks. Yeah, and troops was. Cops, cops and, and, and Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. And that was actually... Re- Troops was really good. Yeah. The story of the Stormtroopers going around doing all the stuff that we saw the repercussions of. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, trying to find the droids in A New Hope. <clears throat> right. And they find Tom Servo. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they, they'd always, um, there's there's always been fan films as long as it was affordable for people to make. Early on, people wouldn't be so crazy as to, uh, you'd be like, I'm going to make something that's directly set in it. They're just going to do a parody. So there's things like Hardware Wars, which is a, came out just after Star Wars, fueled on the popularity of that. And it's it's great. You can probably watch it online. By the way, we're going to have we're gonna be talking about a lot of films, so we're going to have links to all this stuff on this episode's page. And Hardware Wars was a, was a parody of Star Wars that was just a little like, I mean, low budget, really slapped together. And at the time, I think it may have been for a while, one of the most successful independent films ever made. Oh, yeah. And then in the, in the 90s, like these films we were talking about, this really started upping the ante with based on the hardware, basically, what, what people were able to get a hold of as far as costuming, filming equipment, right. and, uh, and what could be accomplished with computer editing. And it's just uh, snowballed right up to this point. <laughs> right. Well, I feel like before, you were, I mean, you were talking about how it was a par- things were parody, parody yeah. films, whereas now I feel like they're really starting to take... Like I want to tell this story in this in this universe. I am I am me I am personally adapting yeah. this source material directly, and I'm not doing anything to it. But what Hollywood would do, right. except it's a short film, right? Exactly. And yeah. Then we, it's awesome. And then we see something interesting, like there will be brawl, which is actually one of our top twenty nerdy things in two thousand nine. It was a whole uh, film series. It was a parody of both Super Smash Brothers with all the Nintendo characters, and there will be blood. So it was a crime story set in multiversal Nintendo world. With with like Zelda and yeah, Mario. Yeah, it was like yeah. that, that brawl averse. 
Yeah. It was awesome. Where it was just the entire Nintendo world swirled into one. That looked pretty good, but it was really low budget. It was really, really low budget. I mean, you could see the strings. That was the kind of low budget it was. Right. I mean, the costuming was phenomenal. It was the my biggest complaint, sadly, was the fight choreography, you'd think. Oh, yeah. It uh, was about fighting, but that was its greatest weakness for sure. Sadly. <laughs> then there was that Mega Man A feature-length feature Mega Man film, 90 minutes, and the guy who made that's name is Eddie LeBron, and he's actually, his next project is a feature-length Sonic the Hedgehog film Whoa. where he's gotten Jaleel White to reprise his role as Sonic the Hedgehog. Wow. Whoa. That's cool. I don't know what the status of that project is, but it did get a lot of buzz online. I hope he goes more of the, the Freedom Fighter approach. I, I can bet that he's going to go with okay. the direction of Star Sonic the Hedgehog being a badass rather than Sonic the Hedgehog eating chili dogs and pretending he's a Looney Tune character. Okay, good. <laughs> Just saying, probably. There's different classes in these pro-grade fan films. There's like, there's, there's standalone shorts, kind of bigger production things. There's great ones like A Link to the Future made by uh, Grant Grant Dufresne which is a, a mashup and again it's a parody and that's always going to be a part of it you know it's a mashup of Back to the Future and the, the Zelda chronology it really makes fun of how convoluted the Zelda chronology is Yeah, there's two amazing Portal films that came out around the release of Portal 2 one yeah. by um, Eisen Fruer which is called Outside Aperture and then another by Dan Trachtenberg just called Portal No Escape I saw No Escape that one was really good yeah, yeah. Basically, it was the girl. It was the girl in Portal, right? Mm -hmm. Jack Chell. It was basically her escape, but not. Am I correct? Yes, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. It's like her working out and her like going through this whole kind of like you know trapped rocky, in a room, learning, rocky, yeah, learning, learning to think with portals. Exactly. And then she eventually gets out, but then she realizes that it's not really out. Yeah. And the other one is actually, you could, you, no you, escape. you could watch it as a sequel to it if you want, where she finally does get out, and it's what happens to Chell in the abandoned, desolate world outside where she's got her portal gun and she's finding abandoned houses and she's just trying to live and her brainwashing has just made her completely obsessed with cake. Wow. And it's not a comedy. It's actually kind of really sad. Oh, oh my God. That's horrible. <laughs> hey, hey, speaking of not a comedy, kind of really sad, did, did any of you guys see Thumb Wars? Oh, God, don't <laughs> fucking bring up... That. No, seriously. I didn't want to bring it up, but now that you did. Thumb Wars. I got it I got it as a Christmas no, a birthday gift when I was in high school. Ugh. One our one of my one of our friends I, in high school gave that to uh, me. Yeah. Every single thumb movie is a cinematic abortion. Now, it's true. But I'm just I'm just saying that it's out there. Um, so okay. Everybody uh, everybody don't changing everybody the subject to something awesome. Please. Mortal Kombat Resurrection. Here. Yes. Yes. That was Kevin Tantrone's fan film that he made. Using, a lot of these fan films are made by people who are in the industry, younger people in the industry who have access to equipment and basically use their resources to pull together shoestring budgets that they can make something that looks fantastic. Yeah. This is a very direct attempt to get Warner Brothers' attention with this film. He later on went and made Mortal Kombat Legacy, but Resurrection was a total spin-off. It was his own universe that had like different renditions of Reptile, of Baraka, of all these different people. And then we later saw in Resurrection, Baraka was an outworlder, unlike in Resurrection. Where it was playing on that Batman Begins style. Everything's like, it's crazy, but it's still real. Right. Like, it's that hyper-realism. Taking out the mystical elements, but like in a in Resurrection, like Baraka... He's, he's not a monster. He augments his body. Right. He was a, a crazed... 
plastic surgeon that mm. had done all this augmentation and installed blades into his arm. The fan film, like, he pulled in known actors for this thing. Jerry Ryan, who you may know as Seven of Nine in Star Trek Voyager, and, and other stuff. She's done other stuff, but that's maybe the most nerdy thing she's done. Basically, known actors, and then when he got the opportunity to do the official series through Warner Brothers because of this film, he, he, he pulled in those actors again. That was a ballsy move. Most people don't pull in, like, known screen actors for, right. for fan films, right. but... But wow. I was kind of bummed with some of it where it was like really close. Like the, all the Outworld stuff with Malin and Katana were really close to the Mortal Kombat. And what I liked was how far away it was. And then it, when they when they touched on Raiden, Raiden was what I loved. Was Raiden was pretty much, he was found on the street and thought to be a crazy person. And they took him to a psycho ward. And, and <laughs> yeah, that was they, actually really fun. That was really great. Yeah, I have seen this. This is it was really good. Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> it was like one of my favorite things that came out of the Ultimates was is Thor really a a thunder god or not, or just crazy? And that's you kind of have that feeling with Raiden. Like you don't really you don't really see him teleport. You just see him wandering around with these clothes on. Oh, and they didn't. And he wasn't doing anything with electricity. But then they gave him electric shock therapy. Yeah, and then that's what caused him to like go ballistic right because <laughs> i mean when you put the god of thunder and lightning you uh -huh. know you give him electric shock yeah yeah goes down. <laughs> that was what i was looking for after seeing resurrection this this new spin on really memorable characters and then of course there's nuka break yes nuka break created by zach frinfrock and written by our very own brian clevenger Aww. one fan film which was acknowledged by the company that owns the, the rights and said you can do this but we won't necessarily comment on it <laughs> the unofficial endorsement of from bethesda amazingly successful kickstarter drive that turned it into a series that's pretty cool yeah and it, it's totally awesome hope to be speaking with zach about the the project in the future and it's been amazing if you like the writing of brian clevenger then or fallout or both then you're going to want to see the series if you haven't it's really great agreed i want to throw this out here because this is the most perhaps of all the prograde fan films that I've personally witnessed, the most imp single most impressive one I've ever seen just came out recently. It's an adaptation of Ben Templesmith's Welcome to Hoxford, which is about a prison full of werewolves, basically. That's the shortest explanation of it that I could conceivably give. This was adapted by Julian Mokrani with a story and art direction by Samuel Bodine, who also did a Batman fan film, kind of Sin City, it's a Batman called Batman Ashes to Ashes. It's French language, so I guess they're they're, they're French guys. Hoxford was Engl in English. Still got that Sin, Sin City, like CGI, live action fusion, but done in a way that's less derivative and more unique. It's very, very, very intense. When you see this, you will shit bricks. It is so crazy good. So definitely check that out. We've been renting for a while. Let's get a song break, and then we're going to talk to Polaris about his amazing Casey Jones fan film. Well, when this isn't Polaris, like that made the the music for for no th this is not this is not mark mulhaney's band polaris who did the music for the adventures of pete and pete okay this is polaris banks okay because i would have gotten really excited <laughs> <laughs> i hate you so much immediately after we finished our science episode recording that we recently released symphony of science releases a new track onward to the edge that is so on the nose of uh, what we were talking about. The threat of the space program ending and our push to the stars being drastically limited. And this was meant to be more of an inspiration to fight against that. And it's interesting. We've seen them a lot in different Symphony of Sciences, but this one focuses very heavily on Neil deGrasse Tyson, which I'm a big fan of Neil. So, I'm uh, sorry, Dr. Tyson. So... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Don't be so familiar with me, boy. <laughs> I truly enjoyed this track, as I do with every Symphony of Science. They all drive me to tears when I first see them. <laughs> so, I, Well, I wish we could have played it at the conversation. It would have been really appropriate. But, let, yeah, let's do it now. Yeah. Let's do it now. And if you haven't heard that episode, it's great. Yes. There's some, some serious shenanigans going on with the space program. And, you know, we need, as a species, need to push towards the stars and, and seize our future. And if you want to hear more about that, check out our previous episode. We'll have it linked to this page. Enjoy. The act of moving onward means we, we pass these signposts. One of them was first leaving Earth. The next one is hanging out on the moon. What's next? The planets. Onward to the edge. We're moving onward to the edge. Here we are together. This fragile world. This fragile world. Onward to the edge. We're moving onward to the edge. Here we are together. This fragile world. is our song, just another star in a sea of stars, the heart of the solar system, just another star in a sea of stars, Mercury is the closest planet, this tortured piece of rock has been stripped naked, the moon has a sky, it has a horizon, it's another world. It's got Earth in the sky, just the way we have the moon in the sky. Onward to the edge, we're moving onward to the edge. Here we are together, this fragile world. We're not the only world to think about. Think about worlds unknown. We're not the only world to think about. Think about worlds unknown. There is a powerful recognition that stirs within us. When we see our own little blue ocean planet in the skies above the world. A powerful recognition that stirs within us. When we see our own little blue ocean planet in the skies above the world. The Saturn system offers splendor beyond compare. Because of its rings and very diverse moons. These are no longer abstractions. These are worlds. Maybe there's life there. They've changed how we think about Earth. Our own little blue ocean. The motive dust suspended in a sunbeam. The pale blue dot. Onward to the edge. Together, this fragile little world, this fragile little world, onward to the edge, we're moving onward to the edge, here we are together, this fragile little world, we're not the only world to think about, think about, worlds unknown, we're not the only world to think about, think about, worlds unknown, the laws of nature, Create vastly different worlds with the tiniest of changes. Tiniest of changes. When I reach for the edge of the universe, I do so knowing that along some paths of cosmic discovery, there are times when, at least for now, one must be content to love the questions themselves.
Welcome back. What you just listened to was a track from OC Remix that was by newcomer Tegan Kelk, and that was Big Bad Koopa Dubstep. That was a remix uh, primarily from Super Mario Brothers RPG, but also had some influences from the influences that influenced Super Mario RPG, Super Mario Brothers 3. That's deep, man. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's that's heavy. That's some transcendental yeah, that's, stuff. That's some on. meta music yeah. uh, knowledge I just threw down that Oof. no one cares about. <laughs> <laughs> well, with us on the line, we got Polaris Banks, the writer and director of Casey Jones, the fan film. Hey. <laughs> Welcome to the show. So, Polaris, your film is really, really quite awesome. Uh, I was blown away when I saw it, how much it looked like the uh, the real world Turtles universe that Steve Barron created in his film, uh, how much your brother looks like Elias Codius, and um, how his acting was like riffing on that amazing performance of Casey Jones so much, and then all the things that you did differently with it. I was wondering if you could, uh, as we talk about this film, kind of share with us your Turtles background. You know how you got really into the turtles. What's your favorite turtles things, and uh, yeah, what made you decide to yeah. make a film? Yeah, a labor oh, of love. Sh- sure. Well, the strange thing is, a lot of the people who write about the movie, they they seem to mention. Well, clearly, he's a huge fan since you know birth or whatever. And um, I think every kid born in the mid '80s loves the Ninja Turtles. But um, I got into it through making the movie even more. I hadn't really read the original run of the comics, and uh, it, it all just the inspiration came because I had a special effects um, artist roommate and we wanted to do a creature suit and I just kind of realized how much Hilarion always looked like Casey Jones to me and not just <laughs> Elias Cody's he kind of looks like the, the comics drawings and the new cartoon drawing all mixed together is like it kind of looks like an amalgam of everything I would imagine Casey Jones to look like and so I was like let's do a turtles thing with something short and then I started to uh, research Casey Jones as a character and I got really into the old Mirage comics and I just did research of everything, you know, the the Sega Genesis video game appearances, the the new show, you know, heck, anything I could find. And then um, I became like a huge Turtles fan last year or two, you know, just <laughs> working on the movie. And um, I wanted to put as many references and as many, you know, and I guess that's why it seems so nuancey is because it's all fresh. I wasn't trying to remember something I, I read when I was a kid. I was doing it directly now. <laughs> and that's also why it's not Raphael in the movie. It's Michelangelo. I had the idea to do the creature suit first, and we decided on Michelangelo because mm. my friend who could do it could do nunchucks and was a big Michelangelo fan. Mm. And we might be able to get, you know, Robbie Riss for the voice and all that. And then we added Casey Jones in second, and then we decided to make it about him when I got you know, more and more excited about him as a character. but well, um, That all makes sense. That answers a bunch of questions we had. <laughs> yeah. Past. I mean, because it's interesting to see Michelangelo in the role of what was traditionally Raph, like as the, the turtle pal of Casey Jones and getting Robbie Riss, the original voice actor, was uh, crazy. How'd that go down, actually? <laughs> that's, that's funny. Everyone, that was the most normal thing. Like, I didn't know him or anything, and I didn't know anyone who did, really. Um, someone wrote me to... Uh, he heard about the project and he wanted to do the voice of one of the turtles. And I said, you could do um, Leonardo. You had a good Leonardo voice. And he said, you know, I know Robbie Riss. I do a lot of voiceover. You should write him and see if he wants to do it. And I was like, yeah, that is a good idea. <laughs> and uh, I never thought that big until he suggested it. And then, uh, yeah, I wrote Robbie Riss and um, I, I just contacted his agent and I paid him like a regular rate. And it was just the most professional, normal thing. Worked with him for three hours. No real finagling involved. It was very to the point. <laughs> In your interpretation of Casey Jones, what kind of strikes me as like the most crazy thing about the adaptation is, is that it's 
uh, it feels to me like such a, a hardcore interpretation of Eastman at his craziest, like at his most ultimate Casey Jones is a psychopath kind of thing. But at the same time, it's got the uh, Elias Cotius like really charming, really likable Casey Jones. <laughs> but he is a he is a motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what brought that about? What made you like stick all that into the character? Well, anyone who reads a comic of, of something they've seen a movie of or a TV show of, they realize the comics, there's always this element that is never translated in the film because it's not general enough. It's, it's too alienating, you know, and everyone who has this longing when they read a Daredevil comic or a Batman comic or something, they go, oh, man, I want to see it like... They take the craziest part of the character and go, I'd like to see it like that. I'd like them to not lose that. And what really got me interested in Casey Jones was, especially reading the first issue he was in, I was like, this guy, if he hadn't met the Ninja Turtles, would be murdering people left and right. It's <laughs> clearly nuts. And there's this weird, you know, untold part where Casey Jones becomes a vigilante, and then later on he meets a Ninja Turtle and, and goes a little more straight. But there is a middle when he's just on his own, and who knows what happens, and that was what I was interested in. I was like, <laughs> even if it was just one night before he met Raphael in the comic, what did he do? How many people did he trounce? And, and, you know, and I guess, yeah, I was interested in what he would have done because it shows you what kind of dark path he would have gone down if he hadn't, you know. Because yeah. I think the turtles are a perfect foil. They're like a bunch of little cute homeschool kids. <laughs> make, <you know. laughs> and, and he's... And he's like the weird psycho who no one sits by at, at lunch and, you know, and they just make a good little team to soften and harden each other up. That's also why I went with Michelangelo is in the comic, Raphael is kind of in a peaceful, like, let's all be friends mood when he meets Casey Jones because he gets in a fight with his brothers and nearly hurts one of them. And so he's not at himself. He's acting more like Michelangelo or Leonardo in the comic. But we didn't have that backstory if you're going to show it through Casey Jones's point of view. So I was like, I should probably pick a turtle that is a natural foil, you know, someone who's not as aggressive as Raphael and wouldn't be assumed to be aggressive if he shows up out of nowhere. Something you mentioned in this conversation and also in the press release was uh, Casey Jones's incarnation in the Sega Genesis version of Turtles Tournament Fighters. That really struck me because I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Turtles fan, but I never owned a Sega Genesis, and I know that every version of that game had a slightly different character roster, and I've never played the Genesis one. I was wondering, what exactly did you take from Casey's incarnation in that game? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, mostly the look. The look of the character. A lot of people kind of say, they'll watch it and they'll go, Casey's too thin. And, he, you know, he's a thin guy playing him. But uh, a few versions, like, you know, TMNT, the fourth, you know, the animated movie, he is very thin with a long face. But also in Tournament Fighters, the Sega Genesis version, he's, he's just very tall, broad shoulders, and then kind of lean. And um, I like the way his mask looked. I like the way his outfit looked. So a lot of his look is taken from that. But also, just a few moves. I watched it, and there's this great hook under the armpit throw he does. And I incorporated that in one of the middle fight scenes. But also, there's a line when you push, like, the C button. He says, so long, losers. And that's his, like, little, you know, every, every you know, fighting character says a line. This is a taunt. And I added the taunt in. I think after he uh, starts fighting the foot, he, he says, so long, losers, and holds his arms out in the same way. Well no played. One, well no played. <laughs> Yeah. No one's caught that one yet. You know, they didn't. I, I kind of keep sneaking that one in because I want people to play, <laughs> play the game and you know and and remember it. Those are some some specialist inclusions there. I like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was reading this press release and I was overwhelmed by everything you went through for this film. I mean, it was a low budget production, but uh, really seriously a labor of love. I mean, it looks 
fantastic, but all the things that I read about what you went through, those are some stories, and I wanted to yeah. talk about those. A lot of other people would have quit. <laughs> well, it's it was too much fun. Like, all that stuff, the hard stuff was fun. Avoiding the cops and getting shut down on the same <laughs> shot, you know, over and over again, or having to break into some of your old locations to get some pickup shots and stuff like that. That's just <laughs> fun, and, you know, it's good to have an excuse, you know. It's good to do it for art, you know. Hey, man, I was trying to create some art, you know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, but, uh, what were some of those instances oh, where that happened? Well, my favorite was um, we actually rented behind the, 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 an alley. The alley in the middle of the scene where he reconfronts the Purple Dragons is behind a landmark theater, the uh, Paramount Theater in Austin. And I rented the back of it. I just said, you know, here's a couple hundred bucks. If one of you will stay and I'll just do the movie back here. And they were fine. But I spit some blood on the walls. You know, when the characters got hit, some blood would come out of their right, mouths. Right, right. And then, like, a few weeks later, a detective called me and was like, he said that I was charged with desecrating a, a federal landmark. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Well, wow. have, you seen the, have you seen the movie, though? I mean, it's worth it. But, uh, <laughs> but also, that same, that same place, this is the most dastardly thing I've ever done for movies. And I didn't even tell my extras or my cast that I was doing it. Just me and my friend Cruz, who helped me a lot with the movie. That we wanted to come back to film some more, but I couldn't afford to shoot there another night. So I was like, well, let's just come back and shoot. I left the lights. They won't even notice. And um, they had locked it up with a chain and a, you know, and a little combination lock. So I just broke the chain, filmed, and then kind of put it back. And was like, thanks. <laughs> and the, so the, the same detective called me after charging me with desecration and was like, we also have some people breaking in. It looks like, and he described me and my friend Cruz perfectly. He was like, yeah, there's kind of a, a shorter guy with a beard and a thin guy, and they're, they're, they're breaking the chain here. I don't know, is that you? And I was like, well, what day did you say that was? And they're like, I think it's Monday. And it wasn't. It was Sunday. And I go, that might be me, but it was definitely Sunday. And he goes, I'm sure it was Monday. And I was like, okay, copper, that's not me. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> and, he just, and he totally dropped it because he, he had the wrong date on the footage. But um, that was the, like the most illegal, awful thing I've ever done. But... <laughs> The, uh, one of the more fun things is we were filming the sewer scene, and I actually... Because you actually filmed in sewers, which totally blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, it was a storm drain. I, I, in Austin, they have this giant storm drain that all the runoff goes to that's, you know, it's huge. And um, I was actually looking for location scouting, like, to make it easier on me, I looked at this Urban Explorers website, and that's that group that they spelunk in mm -hmm. sewers and abandoned buildings and stuff. And they always take photos. And so I just kind of looked through their photos of Texas, and I found that sewer, and I kind of tracked it down by going in there. And then I'd look, when I found a spot I'd like, I'd look out the drainage holes in the, by the curb, and I'd look at landmarks and try and figure it out when I got back out. We dug up somebody's yard without asking them because I knew that the, the manhole was buried under there. We went in there and filmed. And the people of Austin are so great. The guy came out, you know, with his morning coffee or whatever and was like, oh, hey, what are you guys doing? And then he saw the turtle suit and he's like, oh, sweet, man. All right. Well, let, me know. <laughs> let me know if you need anything. And um, then when we were, the generator actually kicked out and we, Marty, who was in the suit, was kind of stranded down there for a little while. But we got it fixed. But we eventually had to haul him back out. And he didn't take off his turtle outfit at all. So when he's coming out of the, the sewer manhole, two kids were riding their bike and like saw this real ninja turtle come out of the sewer and just like haul himself out. And they were like so dumbfounded at what they were seeing. And I was just like, oh, move along, kids. But that was, <laughs> that, was, 
that was the most exciting stuff is just the weird, oh my gosh, this is so, this is so strange that we're doing this in real life. You know, it was exciting because there wasn't a big bunch of lights and film crew and people with clipboards to make you realize that it's just a movie. A lot of times it was just a bunch of ninjas, Casey Jones and a Ninja Turtle and me with a camera. And it was very easy to forget that I was there and just to watch it as if it was really happening. <laughs> you mentioned Austin and you guys actually shot in Texas, which having watched the film first and then read up on it, I was like really surprised by it. I assumed that at least some of it had been shot in New York, but I was, was it hard to find um, the right scenery to give the illusion of it being in New York? Well, strangely enough, I, uh, I live in New York now. And, um, a lot of what people draw of New York doesn't exactly look like New York. New York is very, you know, cramped and small. There aren't these, in the, in the original drawings I saw in, you know, Raphael number one, the first Casey Jones appearance, I wanted to look like that. And uh, there was a lot of, you know, old stony buildings and like it was very desolate and, and open and it felt secluded and, and run down. And um, I, I had better luck finding that. I, like I said, I'm in New York now, and I, I have trouble finding that. Everything is intruded on by something else. It's all overbuilt. You have no real space. Nothing is run down. It gets torn down, and they build something else that looks nice. So I had a really fun time location scouting for the movie because Austin has these great, really craggy, wizened alleys that looked perfect for the movie. And uh, I, I just loved going out at night and just photographing every alley I could find and then comparing them later and seeing, you know... <laughs> And uh, the, the whole first half of the movie is filmed in Dallas because Dallas has taller buildings and more of an urban feel and it has that terrific giant junkyard in it. And so all the daylight stuff's in Dallas and, uh, and all the night stuff is in Austin. Like right when he puts his mask on, he, he switches to Austin because Austin <laughs> is a little, more run, it's a little more run down. But I like location scouting in Texas more than anywhere. You can find what you're really looking for and also people won't bother you as much. You know, you can find this amazing like library or something to film in and people won't go, you know, well, give me a thousand bucks. You know, they'll, they'll be like cool about it. They, they aren't, I guess, jaded by, you know, having so many movies filmed there. And oh, the people are still excited to be making a movie, whether they're an extra or just, you know, renting the location to you, they're, they're thrilled, you know, and it's, it's always fun to be working in, a, in an enthusiastic environment. It's really cool. Yeah, you were talking about, you know, the ninjas and stuff in the alley and all that kind of stuff. You, you obviously hired some people who had some real martial arts experience. Yeah, the uh, the only one who actually I hired and paid was the the stuntman named um, Victor Zaria. He was in he was in the turtle suit doing some of those great you know flips and kicks. But um, everyone else, like I said, if you grew up in the mid '80s or the early '90s, you liked Ninja Turtles. And if you just put up a post saying I'm making a Ninja Turtle movie, would you like to do stunts? They just get so thrilled <laughs> and. Um, Nice. And just martial artists came out of the woodwork to do anything. And pretty much every day I'd, I'd get different foot ninjas because, you know, a lot of them wouldn't, wouldn't come back because they'd be like, you oh, know, that was, that was a big pain in the ass. They'd never <laughs> filmed a movie, so they didn't really know how right. awful it is. But I would just kind of do like a, a little check. I'd be like, okay, what kind of kicks can everybody do? Okay, let's see your flip. Oh, that's good. Let's work that in. Anyone do any parkour? Oh, yeah, you can climb off something. And then I just, <laughs> just kind of work it into the shot based on what I had. And so I used everyone's best tricks, you know? Nice. That's awesome. Cool. One of the strangest inclusions of, uh, of something in the film was Krang. <laughs> like, like, you're not expecting it, boom, Krang, There's fucking Krang. Krang. <laughs> yep. I mean, you, like you said earlier, it was fresh enthusiasm for the series and mixing and matching as you saw fit just because it's fun and wild. But, I mean, like, that was uh, 
first of all, incredible Krang. Oh, yeah. Like, incredible, but but what made you say, I've got to put Krang in this? Yeah, Krang's <laughs> got to be in this. Well, one of the main things was I didn't want to repeat any other Turtle movie very much. I wanted to do things that hadn't been done yet that everyone kind of wanted that hadn't been done, especially a, a violent Casey Jones, but also um, just more Casey Jones altogether. He usually gets a very side role, and a lot of people love him. You know, I love him. I also wanted to do... Michelangelo, because his nunchucks are always ignored, and I want so many elaborate nunchuck stunts, flip kicks and stuff, and Michelangelo usually doesn't get to do very much action at all, because I think it's just more difficult to use his nunchucks in the suit. Mm. Um, another thing I wanted to, you know, or April O'Neil live action in the actual yellow jumpsuit, just all sorts <laughs> of stuff that the fans kind of want, but they can't really necessarily do in a lot of the major releases. But Krang, I don't think will ever be made, you know, I don't think they'll ever put him in a movie. He's ridiculous, but, you know, <laughs> I, uh, true. I wanted to see it, but also one of the big factors was I wanted to have an, a villain reveal at the end. You know, I was going to have Krang and the Shredder, but it was just going to be for one shot, and I didn't want to make a full Shredder costume for one shot, especially if I couldn't compete with the one that had already been made for the other you know, live-action films. But the special effects artist who was on the movie who designed and made the turtle suit, he just coincidentally, while he was at the Savini School for um, special effects makeup, they did an animatronics class, and he opted to make a Krang. So he already had a half-made Krang just in his room. <laughs> and I was like, we got to use this, man. So, so he, he finished, and he added the arms, and he touched it up. And uh, that was one of the last things we shot, as I was like, we, we, we really need to put that in. I can't, I can't live with myself if we don't put that in. <laughs> That's awesome. Nice. So you've got um, a couple other projects that I've seen on your bio and so on that are, are on the way, I guess. Yeah, the the feature, my brother actually, Hilarion, the guy who played Casey, he's uh, directing something right now, and we're still shooting it, some pickups, and I'm doing the editing for it and some of the lighting. But after that, I won't make another movie for probably another year. You don't want to ever go back and do anything lower budget or less difficult than you already did, so I have to step it up from Casey Jones. <laughs> but... Um, Movies take a long time to, to get the money together and all the everything in a row. And so uh, I'll, I will have something great coming up. I was uh, working on getting a feature made next and uh, bumping up the quality. But like I said, I'll, I'll probably disappear and work on an oil rig or something for a year, <laughs> saving up money just to make it. Who knows? Who knows what will happen? Maybe I'll call Steve Barron and say, so you like the movie, huh? <laughs> <laughs> got any friends? <laughs> <laughs> As, as a maker of a pro-grade fan film, what are your, some of your favorite fan films that you've seen recently? You know, uh, somebody just sent me a, an article about um, fan films, and they actually ranked 11 of them in order. I think it was yougo.com, and I was thrilled that I got number one. It was the Whoa. first time anyone, you know, gave me that. But uh, they had them all there. They had all the good ones. They had Troops, and they had, uh, you know, Batman Dead End, and, and a few others. But the one I hadn't seen that I was really thought was great was that Gremlins one. That Gremlins 3, like, you know, it's like an alternate Gremlins section to Gremlins 2, where they, it, they take over your DVR instead of the movie theater. Uh -huh. And I liked it a lot. I thought that one, you know, looked great and was fun. We so, are totally unaware of that. That's awesome sound. Yeah. It, it's great. Let's see. What are the other ones? Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't sat through all of the quest for Gollum. That is, that is honestly the problem with these fan films. Is a lot of time. Oh, I love Grayson. I like Grayson a lot. Oh yeah, that, Grayson was awesome. That's probably the one that, like, really, I was like, oh, I want to do something like that. You know, it's, uh, a, it's a, like a, a hardcore version of uh, Dick. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, as Robin. Yeah. yeah, it's like Batman dies and Dick has to don the costume and avenge him. But uh, it's just a short trailer. But 
really a lot of the uh, the fan films, even though mine is way longer than most of theirs, they kind of overstay their welcome for me. I'm watching them and then I'm having trouble not clicking ahead and seeing the next big thing. So I actually don't like too many of them. They're, uh, yeah. They have a lot of good intentions, but often um, are really hard to watch. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that with any independent film project, if you get someone who's a, it's an insular production crew and you just start doing stuff and then most of the time, if there's no outside force being like, you got to trim this, you got to trim this, you got to yeah. tighten this up, just, it doesn't happen. The, it takes a lot to have a, a nihilistic eye to your own work, I guess. <laughs> a lot of fan films get hurt by that. There's this, um, there's this Spider-Man one called like Grim Goblin's Last Stand and it's just this kid doing real stunts. And it's, it's filmed on videotape. It's really old. That article showed it to me. And uh, he's just riding on top of cars and jumping off buildings. And I was like, <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> that's, that's another thing I like about fan films is they, it's usually a showcase of just crazy, dangerous things a lot of times. And, and Casey Jones was kind of like that because I couldn't mold every weapon in foam, only the bats and uh, the cricket bat. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the other stuff, we're using real hockey sticks and golf clubs. So these stuntmen who are doing it are just crazy to be letting some stranger swing a golf club at their face and they pretend to get hit. And, you know, and anytime the, you see a foot ninja running on the um, the edge of a roof or getting thrown. Um, yeah, there's some all, crazy stunts. It's all very real. That's one guy did a flip off of a building, a one-story building in the turtle suit. You know, these people, I would literally try and push them as far as they could until they just chickened out. I was like, are you sure you can't do a flip off of that? <laughs> you know? And these people, real Hollywood stuntmen and stuff that I've worked with, they, they're kind of, they do it so much that they're very wary of getting hurt. But these other guys are just fearless and really crazy. Even, even myself, I mean, I like doing the, the ridiculous stunts. There's one where the turtle throws a guy over his head, and I was the ninja in that shot because I knew how poorly it was going to go. Like, we only had one mattress <laughs> that we just kept moving around, and, you know, that would be where you <laughs> fell on this one mattress. And um, the guy in the turtle suit, the, shoot, the suit had just kind of shrunk because over time latex gets more um, tight. And uh, he couldn't lift his arms up all the way, so he threw me, and I missed the mattress, and I landed right on my elbow on concrete. Oh, and, uh, but it didn't look good enough, so I did it four more times, and all four times I did not hit the mattress. Oh. And so, so for a lot, a lot of the, the rest of the filming, I had like this arm that had swollen up, and I couldn't move. I had this like robotic looking, like I was doing the robot arm. And in one scene where Casey's really letting the last ninja have it and just beating the crap out of him with his bare hands, that's me doing the doing the ninja. And you can see, like, my right arm is stuck in a, like, a right angle. Like, I can't move it. But uh, that, <laughs> it went away, you know. You just put some frozen vegetables on it or whatever. But like I said, these, these guys are so fearless and just excited. You know, they've been screwing around in their backyard and their mom's been telling them, you know, their whole life they're going to get hurt. And now they... They can become a child again at, you know, like 26 or whatever and do all the dangerous crap and film it and show people. They're very thrilled. That's awesome. It reminds me of all the stories about uh, all the filming of Ozploitation films out in in Australia in the late 70s and early 80s with just people who were just doing crazy low-budget films and they love the thrill-seeking aspect of it and they do insane shit that no Hollywood professional would ever do. And it's great to see that 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 sort of... uh, enthusiasm towards just making a crazy little film is alive and well. Yeah, and uh, it's true. It's it's one of the most thrilling parts about making a low-budget movie is I, you like the danger, but also there's a lot of times where I had to double for Hilarion because he wasn't in town. He was going to school. You know, he's in L.A. for college. And um, one scene, which is fun, was there's this long shot. I guess it's far away, and uh, the camera kind of 
tracks to the right, and it's Casey kind of running around on the rooftops right after the uh, the infamous kid getting hit with golf club shot. <laughs> and um, we only got one take of it because I wanted to do kind of a jump from one roof to the other, and I knew that something, it was going to be the hugest thud ever. And the guys who okayed it were like, you know, oh, sure, just don't mess anything up. And I, I knew I was going to mess something up. I was like, they're going to they're gonna kick me out, so I got to nail this first one. And um, if you watch the footage, I jumped down. And then as I'm running through the rest of the uh, the rooftops, I guess, you see a guy open a window and look around like, what the fuck was that? And, you know, <laughs> and he comes down right after and, and tells me to get the hell out of there. But, you know, you got the shot. You know, yeah. that, that's, that was kind of the motto is as long as we get it before they kick us out, <laughs> I don't care. Nice. <laughs> nice. That alley that we filmed, the, uh, the big ninja fight scene in, we shot there for like 25, maybe 30 days. Like a lot of nights, it was Texas, and so the weather isn't very good for it. Either it's really hot at night and the turtle would get overheated after, you know, three different setups, and he would be like, I'm going to pass out if I don't get out of this thing. So we would shoot just three shots, you know, get all the ninjas together and just make the three most epic shots we could. And then we would leave and get, you know, a whole new setup the next day. Or it would be really cold and he would just couldn't stand it. So yeah, it was slow going, but we got so used to just being out you know there at the middle of the night and just filming until dawn that sometimes it took a real big toll on us and the scene where it's just Casey and Sid talking after Casey unmasked Sid at the end we shot Hilarion's side of it and then we needed to dump the footage and it was just me Cruz and Hilarion just doing it ourselves and we we set the computer up to a generator and started to load the footage and then Cruz lied down on the the mattress that we use for stunts and he kind of started to doze off. Hilarion lay, lied down on a wooden bench, started to doze off, and I kind of propped myself up in a corner, sitting down. And then, before we knew it, we all fell asleep in the middle of an alley. <laughs> <laughs> and hours and hours passed. And then finally, a guy from the event hall next door came out and was like, you guys got to get out of the way. I'm going to do some loading in. And we are like, what the fuck? Oh, my God. What happened? And we had just spent the night outside like homeless people. We were so exhausted. That's amazing. great. That is amazing. Did anybody get, besides, well, besides you, did anybody get injured? <laughs> uh, not too bad, actually. I kind of made a point to do the most dangerous stunts myself. And um, likewise with Hilarion, you know, we wanted to do anything that you could be hospitalized for. Uh, but there was one kid um, did get a like a bloody nose. He got accidentally hit. Another guy accidentally got kneed in the forehead during one shot, but he was fine. And uh, one shot that we didn't even use in the film because it just didn't work as well. Um, a guy bumped his head on a trampoline when he was doing a, a stunt. But really, nothing too bad. People are usually pretty good about going, that's going to kill me, I don't want to do it. So, you know, <laughs> they have a pretty good sense of self-preservation. Nice. In your original trailer, you used uh, the music of John Dupree from the original Turtles film. And then you brought in uh, Zane Effendi to do the score, which has notes of Dupree's score in it. Um, I was wondering if you could just tell us about what you wanted to do with the score and how you felt it came out and all that. Yeah, the score is kind of the best part. That's the most professional and expensive part of the film. It's, it, the, the score even turned out to be more expensive and time-consuming than the, the turtle suit. Really, uh, I just put up a post, you know, in some scoring forums and on Craigslist um, when I was living in L.A., and Zane contacted me. He had just gone solo after working with Hans Zimmer as, you know, in Hans Zimmer's kind of music house, and uh, he was just looking for projects that looked exciting to do, and it was way lower pay than he was used to but it was still plenty by my standards and uh, we worked on that score for like a whole year you know he would just pick at it because I couldn't pay for his full attention 
but he was he was a great composer but it was very hard at first to get the sound right because I wanted something old you know like a melodic score something like Bernard Herrmann or you know James Newton Howard something like that like kind of a classic score one that would probably have been written in the 80s I wanted the movie to feel like it came out in the 80s and they don't really write them like that anymore it's a lot more just kind of atmosphere and drums and stuff and I said I don't want just a loop of percussion I don't want just a bunch of synth you know like just setting the tone and so there really is none in the movie but that took a lot longer to score especially since he was doing it himself and without really a team under him. But it's strange. People say that it sounds kind of like the John Dupree score. And um, I love the John Dupree score from the original movie. And that was originally, I did want it to have 80s elements, but we ended up kind of cutting them all and going with more of a straight classic score, just, you know, orchestra and horns and and uh, really no no synth elements uh, if possible but I think really what it um, what it comes down to is I, I temp scored the movie with some John Dupree stuff so when you're writing it you, you try and make it sound a similar fashion but yeah. really instru- instrumentation it was more like uh, I just love Hitchcock's music and I was really like if we can just make it as many low strings and woodwinds and stuff like that cool. as possible he, he really deserves a lot of credit for that composition I really I really love everything he wrote for the movie well how long did it actually take for you to do the, like from start to finish, wh- how long did it take this whole production? That's a good question. The um, the movie took forever. Like it took about three years because there were just so many factors slowing it down. One Hilarion at the time was going to UCLA, and they only have quarterly year breaks. So he'd come for a month in the fall. We'd film the turtle suit wouldn't be ready, and we just, just do all the shots we could. He'd come in the winter, and we'd film. Come in the spring, we'd film, but um, a lot of time the turtle suit wouldn't be ready. It just was a big daunting task, so we just film everything else. I actually filmed the fight scene without the turtle. I filmed every other shot, and so that's why the turtle kind of runs off at the beginning, and then it, Casey's alone. You'd see the turtle like appear for one shot, and Casey's alone. A lot of it is just because the turtle suit wasn't ready, and also I wanted to focus on Casey, but that slowed it down. So production took a whole year, but we did a lot of pre-production simultaneously, so we didn't have to wait for that. But then editing and um, the the sound mixing and the composition and all the uh, the artwork that took another two years, just because I couldn't afford to pay people for their full attention. You know, I, I wanted the perfect you know art for the end credits or the the best compositions for the the cues so you just kind of have to bear with the people and go I'll be patient if you can't do it if your normal rate is yeah. five thousand dollars for a week then uh, let's not do that and you just get to it when you can <laughs> but everyone who worked on the movie is a Turtles fan you know they, they did it because they were enthusiastic about the way the movie was coming out and they wanted it to be good and so they they were like I, I normally wouldn't do something like this but I, I just can't resist making a Casey Jones movie <laughs> and especially the artwork at the end. I oh, love yeah, that. the ending credits are great. And uh, he, he was a really, really amazing artist that I just kind of found scrolling through like 100 profiles on DeviantArt trying to find the right look. And he's just some guy who lives in Istanbul who was like, oh, my God, I love Casey Jones, sure. And um, never met him, but people just got those, so enthusiastic about it, they would kind of cut me a break. That's awesome. How much did the film cost to make altogether? You know, it's hard because... At first, it cost about you know ten, fifteen thousand just all out front, just to get all the equipment and hiring everybody and all that. But then over those two years, pretty much every extra dollar I'd make, I'd spend. So it was hard to keep track. I kind of estimate twenty thousand, but um, it was more you know I'd, I'd make five hundred bucks and I'd go okay, I can hire somebody. Let's see who do I need, and I'll I'd, I'd hire a, a graphics person or so, like to touch up the suit or something in, in post. 
and then I'd be broke, and then a month would go by, and then I'd have another 500 bucks, and I'd go, okay, I can hire somebody else, maybe. And right now, I'm still not done. I'm translating the film into different languages, so that if it's going to be up on the internet indefinitely, I want people who speak, you know, Portuguese or French or something to be able to enjoy it too. So I'm translating it into 10 different languages, and like I said, I'm hiring one person at a time. Every time I save up money and just getting it out there, and that's that's really the reason the movie takes so long is it's just one guy saving up money you know spending on it when he can yeah do you have any advice for prospective fan film makers definitely um one don't be cheap you know uh <laughs> people really respond to the production value probably the most popular fan film series that is the uh, mortal Kombat one mm-hmm. I, I forgot what it's called mortal Kombat rebirth or something he spent a lot of money on it and um now he's directing the next mortal Kombat feature film he's you know it, they won't cut you a break if you don't put your time and money on the line then they're not gonna care you know you have to sacrifice if you want them to give you their time but um also, I would really, really stress sound design. I did the shooting of the movie when I was much younger, you know, 22 or something. And now, three years later, I'm doing the sound design that elevated everything. You get a good sound designer to fix your audio. It makes your jokes funnier and your action sequences more exciting and, you know, and your creepy parts creepier. Sound design is everything. And so really hire a professional. Don't think you can do it yourself because sound mixing is the most complicated and... Um, you just really needed someone who knows what they're doing. The score was amazing, and I would even say that more than getting a great score is great sound design. Did you have to do any ADR? Oh, yeah. Almost the entire uh, second half of the movie is ADR. Casey's in a mask. The guy playing the turtle couldn't even speak while doing it because he had to exaggerate the movement of his jaw to, to get the, uh, the motion right. And so... Well, that's rough. Gosh. Everything after he puts on the mask is ADR. And so that was, that was quick shooting. You know, I didn't have to worry about a boom pole a lot but if he takes off his mask it's it's real audio if he has it on it's ADR and that's that's half the film I just kind of made an ADR closet everywhere I would move I would just kind (laughs) of put up a bunch of comforters and you know bring in my mic so I'd be always doing that you can check out the film at CaseyJonesTheMovie.com, and you can actually pick up a physical copy of it. If you're down for that, you want to support Polaris support his next film which you want to do obviously (laughs) (laughs) so what you got for us Hex uh, what I have is Gungala by Johnny October. That was the uh, the single that was made for the film. What is what really is the story behind how that track was made? Since I have oh it. wow yeah um, again like this you know people love Ninja Turtles so much it wasn't hard to find people who wanted to do it. I just put out something on Craigslist or some other forums and be like. I'm just looking for a guy to do a, a rap song for the end credits. Show me, you know, what you got. And Johnny October contacted me, and he had a great style. And uh, he just, and he's actually, he's like Casey Jones. He's this kind of mean little white kid from Brooklyn who, um, he just, he just had this like great vibe. He just seemed to fit the film perfectly. But really, the the guy who did the beat, the J.J. Uh, Brown, the producer, he just contacted me and said he wanted to do it and I went into his place and he just played me pre-made beats. He was like, I've got all these, what do you like? And I was like, God, they're all awesome. And I just kind of picked one out and then three weeks later I had a rap song and there was very little to do with me. It was, <laughs> it's a great track. I love it. Oh, he did an amazing job. Yeah. And um, his lyrics, like the more I listened to them and kind of pieced together, I'm like, they're so clever. It's, you know, it's just, I, la- I love the song. It, it really makes the film. You should definitely check out Johnny's new album, The Wheelhouse. He just released it and I like a lot of his tracks. We'll link to that on the site and uh, ladies and gentlemen enjoy Gungala by Johnny October. One, two. Uh. J.J. Brown and Johnny October. Five G. Uh. Casey Jones. Yeah. 
It ain't safe no more. The name's Jones, Casey, well-known crazy. Murdering clowns a la John Wayne Gacy. I'm a vigilante, strolling down the Lancy. Roughing up the street toughs, choking out the Nancys. Pick a sport, I got your game night here. I came with the right gear to bring the pain all here. Now maybe they might call it on the luck of the rain. They could roll the tarp out over the suckers I've slain. Casey Jones on the scene, scream Goongala. Motherfuckers catching pucks to the Goongala. Watch it, chump, don't be acting like a Goongala. Goongala, 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 Goongala. Foots running from a ball bat The king jumping, they'll be lucky if they crawl back Taking big cuts, clear the building with your small sack Cause that's another 80s killer that they call crack Don't be gabbing in my back swing Heads are flying, it don't matter if they lack wings I'm not a psychic, but I do know what the bag brings And my prediction for your future, bad things Purple dragons Come out and play Casey Jones on the scene Scream Goongala Motherfuckers catching pucks to the Goongalas Watch it jump, don't be acting like a Goongala Goongala, 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 Goongala That's right, Jones, Casey The goalie master facey So I can break the bones and know the news will never break me Purple dragon appetizers Can't satiate me? I watched the live at five with April O My lady's taste So you better beat it home You be low like scum Cause if I catch you round in third punk You won't find fun If it wasn't for Raphael I'd be dragging your ass to hell Toss a meatball in my wheelhouse The wheel in your back to jail Casey Jones on the scene Scream Goongala Motherfuckers catching pucks To the Goongalas Watch it chunk Don't go acting like a Goongala 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 Casey Jones on the scene, scream Goongala Motherfuckers catching pucks to the Goongala Watch a chump, don't go acting like a Goongala Goongala, 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 Goongala Hey people, Steve Bloom here, voice of Spike Spiegel, Wolverine, etc. You know, your friendly neighborhood, psycho, voice monkey. Anyway, you're listening to The Nerdy Show. Stay tuned. Tell a friend. They need people to listen or they'll close down. And I will personally come to your house and take your daughter.
What you just listened to was a bit of score by Mr. Jean Dupree. That was Shredder Suite, one of the uh, most memorable and intense themes from the original Ninja Turtles motion picture. With us on the phone right now is Nick Martin Nolich, who's a friend of mine I mentioned. We worked on Media Potluck together. He's a filmmaker. He's an aficionado of pop culture. And uh, the one and only Mr. Steve Barron. Hi. <laughs> the one and only. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 I think there's about 36 of us, actually, because I saw it on that thing where it says, which Stephen Barron are you? (laughs) (laughs) Earlier in this episode, we have gushed at length about how much we love the Ninja Turtles film that you directed. Nick and I personally have spent a lot of time researching the film, talking with each other over the years as to why we feel it's so successful as an adaptation and, uh, and as a superhero film, doing things that other films haven't. So we, we wanted to talk to you about that, about your legacy with music videos, and about the new film you're working on, uh, the TV film Treasure Island. Cool. Now, with the Ninja Turtles film, it's such a, a strong character film, and it did what no one has done before. Henson was working towards this for, for years prior, but I feel that at, with the Ninja Turtles film, it was so immensely successful, taking 
completely unreal characters and totally humanizing them. We were wondering what that process was like for you as a director developing such a film. The process of working with Jim Henson and his Creature Shop was a joy, as you can imagine. We really obviously had the original comic books to base on and we were working through the script to get the structure of the story. But as we were doing that, we were in particular with John Stevenson, who was head of the Creature Shop, and his team we were slowly making maquettes and carving out what these guys would look like in three dimensions. And their ethos is really so strong in, in terms of character. That's what it's all about. From Jim, from Kermit and Miss Piggy and all his great characters, Animal, they, they really instill that into, into the design and an approach of how you're going to uh, put these characters across. In particular, you know, the team of puppeteers that were put together on on the show, and they were very carefully chosen for the character of each turtle. You know, those guys would work then initially with with the equipment that was going to the servos that are going to uh, drive the uh, the different facial expressions, and then eventually with the actual performers who were going to be inside the suits. It was a whole process of casting and and put, forming formulation of a of a team aimed at the best characters we could deliver for for this from the beginning. That's what makes it so good in animatronics. That ethos was there, particularly in Jim Henson's Creature Shop. And so you're onto a good start where you're beginning with that. You're not kind of going to the technical side first. You're you're not going to the uh, you know the puzzles of how to unlock it from any other point of view except character. Steve, from a story basis, did you? approach the script and making sure there were certain segments where the, the characters would be talking in a very emotional way. For instance, when Donatello and Michelangelo are in the sewer talking about Splinter being gone, I almost get the sense that Michelangelo doesn't want to think about it and is using the pizza guy's late delivery as a distraction. Were those kind of moments you, you made sure were in the script to give a realism to these characters? Yeah, they, it was all about being emotional and, uh, and they were teenagers and, and, you know, one of them, Michelangelo, was going to be the guy who is always happy and in denial about his real feelings, you know, buried below. And uh, that was definitely the, the way to go with, with it. It's also an unusual situation in that we were given four characters that looked very similar in an anatomical way. You know, they, they were extraordinary creatures and yet they're all the same they're brothers and and the differences were were very subtle just a colored armband and a tone or a few liver spots or whatever <laughs> and slight, slight shell a, you know a little tiny bit of coloring pretty much they were going to look the, look the same and therefore it was vital that their mannerisms and their characteristics were, were well-defined. Something that always has been interesting with me looking at the film in retrospect, as a kid when it came out, I mean, it made sense to me that the film had the color bandanas and everything and certain aspects like eating pizza, cowabunga, and all that were really well-defined in the film. But learning more about the production and how it got started way prior to... Um... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The cartoon show and the extreme popularity of the show, I've always wondered, did the influences of the cartoon show actually enter into the development of the film? You know, uh, I think actually very little. I mean, really, the only thing were the meetings with Playmates Toys. We knew that they designed these toys at this time before the, even the cartoon show was around yeah. that, that were different to the original drawings in that they were different colored bandanas, you know, in particular. So we were going to go with that as an idea. But the rest of the TV, the TV cartoon, we were well into production when that when that came out, when it was still airing episodes and it was on week eight and they were on at six in the morning <laughs> and 10 million kids were watching it and, and they were getting very excited. No one knew that because no one was up yet. It was, uh, <laughs> the parents were in bed. They didn't find out until until Christmas or or the next birthday that, <laughs> that they had to have it yeah this was a phenomenon and the proof of that was yeah. we were still taking the script around the studios even with the turtles already partly designed and even with jim hansen and even with a low budget you know we were taking it around the studios and the studios didn't want to know they were like they didn't have any inkling of the popularity and we couldn't give them you know true figures we could just give them a notion that kids were starting to become pretty obsessed with this it just didn't do us any good right up to to shooting all we got was finally a couple of million dollars out of new line that was it that's all the u.s were prepared to stick in to a film about the ninja turtles and that shows you know by the time we were shooting how little everybody knew about what was going on with the cartoon even though but at that point, I think it had been out about, it was running. The first series was running. You know, I was keeping an eye on it and knew that early in the morning, these kids were queuing up to watch it. <laughs> now, Steve, when you were making this film, did you view it as a film for children? Because when I first saw this, I only had the cartoon as a background. And I was completely confused at first, not understanding why the turtles were saying all these things that weren't in the cartoon and acting these certain ways and was so dark. You know, who, who was the audience in your mind when you were making this film? I, I mean, to be honest, I really I made it for me. I mean, I was the one who was first in line to watch Ghostbusters and mm -hmm. I was couldn't wait for Batman to come out. And I was making it for me. It was the same market. It was Ghostbusters, you know, Batman, then Ninja Turtles. And, <laughs> and uh, I wasn't thinking about six-year-olds or eight-year-olds. That's why... You know, we, I, I'd come off the comic book as well. Don't forget, I really yeah. hardly had seen the cartoon. So the comic book, the Eastman and Laird, really kind of engrossed me in the comic. And I really just went through every frame that had been drawn and pulled out the ones that I thought should be in the movie, the scenes that should be in the movie or the moments for the movie. And then, you know, worked on the script, basically, really, from there. I didn't even realize that hearing you say that, that's probably you know, a real disappointment going in to see this movie and, and expecting the uh, 
the, what, what everyone was screaming about the cartoon. Uh, it wasn't that, you know. Well, it was definitely not a disappointment. And, and if anything, it was an affirmation that what we were so into was in fact as awesome as we thought it was. Nick and I both were the same age, and actually most of us on the show are, are relatively the same age. We all grew up first knowing about the Turtles as a cartoon, but then later discovered the comic book, which is, I mean, the original series of cartoons is is nothing by comparison to most other incarnations of the turtles mm-hmm. i mean your your film stands out as being like the pinnacle of what's been done with the characters kids always grow from not being talked down to mm-hmm. it may have been as far as the marketing people were concerned a bit of an accident that it materialized in the way it did since they were so ignorant to how popular the turtles were but it was a very good thing because i'd hate to see the i mean i guess i could say i'd hate to see the film that would have come from it but i've, I've seen the two films that came you know came from that <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I'm, the original film had a, had a tremendous impact on, on all of us. Yeah, and, great. And I think that we appreciate it even more as adults than we did oh, yeah. as kids. Yeah, by far. Yeah. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> We've got some very particular, very, very nerdy questions, uh, film nerdy kind of questions about the development of film and, and actually actively filming it. And most of these come from Nick. You know, Steve, I, I just wondering... You know, watching the film, there are some moments where it feels very documentary style with a handheld camera. There's a high grain in the image. Sometimes what feels like one very bright single source light. Were those intentional aesthetic choices to make the film seem gritty and more real because you're dealing with such fantastical characters? It's about reflecting where they came from. For me, it was like they lived in the sewers. They grew up in the sewers. I wanted to kind of get that across and that sort of high contrast look where things fall off into the dark. I thought, you know, we could get into their, their souls a bit more if we, if we experienced that as a watch. So, you know, I wanted quite a lot of night in it and, uh, and uh, you know, I wanted uh, these faces to come out of the, of the blackness. And uh, generally then it's single source light if you're going to go for, you know, the falling away into blackness. And the grain kind of comes a little bit from it was lifted at the end. I know the studio, Golden Harvest, were extremely nervous about it when it when they saw it. They were they thought it was way too dark <laughs> and uh, completely not what they thought they were going to get the cartoon. <laughs> and you know we weren't going for that. And I was left on my own pretty much to do the film. So it was only when they started seeing it put together it was uh, that everyone panicked and said let's uh, brighten it up. We got to brighten it up. So the grain then started to show a bit more in that which I don't mind you know I think the grittiness I think is good for the flashbacks I really I thought it was evocative to go into that Super 8 mode where we literally shot these things on a Super 8 camera for all the flashbacks to give it more texture and I think with fantasy anything that can help you make it feel real grounded earthed you know something that you actually can believe is, is an asset and part of that asset is not kind of crashing in a hundred lights and just brightening it all and making it all colorful. I don't believe the theory that people read comics or watch cartoons because they want it all colorful. I believe they watch them because of characters and story. And it doesn't mean that you have to, which a lot of the adaptations have done, they kind of go for something that's way too an imitation of, of the original comic itself, which loses the point. You know, the character of Danny and the whole Lost Boys Pleasure Island motif. When did that come into the film and how did that particular idea come about? That idea came out from an article 
and I can't remember how I got the article, but it was an article in a paper about, I was always a big fan of Oliver Twist and Fagin. Somebody sent me an article about extremely charismatic guy in Philadelphia, I think, who had all these children out thieving for him and he was uh, letting them play games and smoke and drink and he gave them this kind of utopia existence and for in return for that he would kind of take all the spoils and uh, and and look after them that was the basic thread and i just thought that was the missing link uh, within what we had from from everything from the turtles was was something that would uh, underscore that the shredder what the shredder was up to it just felt like a you know fagin idea could really work there yeah i've always thought that the uh, the addition of, of danny as a character uh, was a really amazing way to to play off the turtles as teenagers to have like a human teenager in there who is struggling with like just a massive yeah. um emotional turmoil and hardships and playing up the theme of uh, of family so hard the uh, emotional resonance from all those themes are one of the many things that makes it such a lasting film that's yeah. in a lot of ways very very timeless can you give us any insight into the casting choices you made you know Elias cotes looks a lot like robert de niro who also plays a very famous new york vigilante uh, any any comments on that? Yeah, that wasn't deliberate. People had him for casting for that role, and we saw quite a few people. He was just so interesting. I just loved his uh, the rhythms, which aren't really rhythms. They're they're messed up. Just the way his choices and the, and the way he goes to things that you don't expect. That was the thing. A vigilante like that. I I just think it's nice to kind of not know what's coming next he did that by far the best out of everyone in the castings that we went for and and uh, there was no no doubt i wanted him and from from the moment he 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 did his audition really the de niro thing was almost because straight away you could see the the de niro look and the grin and stuff but that wasn't deliberate uh, in fact that almost stood in the way in a, in a way what was the point of it being being a de niro little bit of a lookalike should have played the young de niro but there wasn't why definitely not why it was really all about what he could bring to this character and the unpredictability just to added to the reality of it while we're on the subject of casey jones i was wondering what you thought about uh Blair banks's well his, his homage to your film the casey jones fan film i think it's cool i think that always should have been an offshoot little uh, another story for casey actually definitely should have one and that and that looks cool i mean for a, I'm, I'm sure they didn't have a lot of resources to make that and I thought it had a, a lot of a lot of style and just the idea and take Casey further with the the voice acting. Were you involved with directing the voice with the voice actors and did you were you involved in their casting as well? We were involved in the discussions of it. The Kerry and Josh Pace. I mean, Josh Pace was out of the four actors that did the the, the body movement and were the performers inside the suits josh was the really strong actor i thought of all those guys they all all the other guys brought something good to it but i really wanted to hang on to his voice for Raphael, and he was the guy in the suit so you know that was always you know the one thing i really wanted to happen at that time that came at the very last thing that was done and it came at a time when I was, you know, in, in pretty big battles, locked horns over the uh, Katzenberg thing. But it was, I mean, I, I thought they were fine. I thought they could have been stronger. What did you guys think of them? We like them. <laughs> they mimic their voices an awful lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you lose any battles with the studios and how dark or any different choices that you were trying to make? Yeah, I lost one major battle, actually, at the end. 
I wasn't able to shoot everything because we only had seven weeks to shoot everything and I wanted an extra week shooting and with Jim Henson we tried to raise an extra half a million just to do these extra little insert shoots and some scenes that we weren't able to get on the main shoot we lost about 10 pages that we weren't able to shoot the main thing i lost was the music i was trying to do something quite radical and who knows if it would have worked i was trying to i had malcolm mclaren which is why i put him in a sid vicious (laughs) t-shirt i had malcolm mclaren who at the time had just come out with an album of these great classical tunes with a, a mix track of dance music and which i loved and I wanted him to score, to give us a, a, a base score for it. Would have been wild, but they absolutely, you know, thought that was way too unconventional and dangerous. And that was the main one. The others were just about time and money. You know, we made it, we literally made it, whatever it says in the trades, we actually made it for $7 million. I know, because I was watching the budget every day. <laughs> it was really tight. Yeah, there was there were compromises, definitely, but... You know, we probably spent three million of that on the, on the Jim Hansen Creature Shop, and that was just every dollar worth ten times over. You know, so mm-hmm. it's not quite the film I went to make, but I'm still I'm really proud of it. I hadn't seen it for like ten or fifteen years actually until I went to New York about three years ago, which with Kevin Eastman invited me to the anniversary, this sort of outdoor screening of it in New York. I don't know whether you heard about that, but yeah, um, I wish I could have been there. And, <laughs> And I went to see it, and I sat in the back with him afterwards, and we'd introduced it and everything, and we're watching it. And I was going, this is quite good. (laughs) (laughs) And we were like, yeah, we were like, where's the popcorn? This is fun. I'd forgotten there were lots of good little nuances in it. I mean, you just forget, you know, all all the things that we put in about the cricket. I mean, you know, like kind of nobody (laughs) understands. Cricket, what a mad line in a Hollywood movie. (laughs) (laughs) Trivial Pursuit as well. I remember I was into that at the time. I was like, maybe they're playing Trivial Pursuit, which is like ridiculous, but, you know, they were. Cricket? You have to know what a crumpet is to understand cricket. (laughs) And, uh... (laughs) <laughs> like we, we <laughs> those things are perfect and they do such a great job of humanizing the characters and then and also just i mean <laughs> filling our sponge-like child minds <laughs> with incredible catchphrases <laughs> yeah. we've heard about how there was another cut of the film that was potentially to be released uh, a while back that apparently the studio just wasn't into and then decided to just repackage the same version of the dvd they've been doing for years was wondering about details about that the deleted scenes that we we know of like it seems like during one of the scenes Tatsu may have actually killed a foot soldier and there was like a, a dialogue dubbed in say he was knocked out there was a battle between shredder and the foot soldiers before they get the dragon dojis i believe things that we're moderately aware of via pictures and trading cards and stuff that's been shuffled around the internet but what what's really missing from the film as far as your final version they all sound legitimate things. I can't remember whether we shot them or whether we cut them out. They sound like things that were, were definitely there. There was nothing really that was cut out that I didn't feel shouldn't have been cut out, except the pages that I wasn't allowed to shoot. And it was that montage at the beginning is not how we began the film, where when you were hearing April O'Neil's voice saying, talking about the thefts all over the city, it wasn't as crass as it was done in that, that the unloading the truck and all that stuff. It was it was a much more mysterious opening, and I can't remember what it was, but it's better, but it got thrown out for cost. We ran out of days to shoot. That's the, uh, the stuff that you and Jim Henson were trying to raise extra money to get filmed? Yeah. Are you yeah. able to speak on those? You said it was a long story, but if you've got the time, so do we. We want to hear that. <laughs> I'll tell you the long story of what we tried to do because uh, I was in post and I was about five weeks into the cut and I spoke to the producers and at this point the producers just told me to stop filming 
and stay on budget and get get back to the cutting room. And uh, that would be that. I just wanted to try and still do the things we'd missed, whatever those things were. And I think it was about 10 pages of, of stuff. Jim Henson sort of said, well, Jeffrey Katzenberg's down at uh, Disney now. If there's some territories left in the world to sell or whatever, you know, maybe you should show it to him because I'd, I'd help sell UK and France and Germany in Cannes. We'd, we'd been in Cannes and we had a better response than the American <laughs> end of it uh, by showing what we were doing, by showing the maquettes of Splinter and things in Cannes. We got some good deals that made the film possible to even start pre-production. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I sort of snuck it along. I didn't tell the producers that I snuck it to Jeffrey Katzenberg, like, and he get he's, he's an exec who was notorious for starting at six in the morning. So I kind of went into the cutting rooms at five and got the cans of film and arranged it with his assistant editor and, and took them in and, and ran it for him and a couple of people at Disney. And he said, what, what do you, what do you want? And I, and I said, well, I want, you know, an extra half a million dollars to, to make this and somehow make this properly. And he quite enjoyed it. And he said, well, you know, in terms of what you've done so far, there's there's more more work to do on the on the turtles and their characters and that. I said, yeah, well, as we're cutting, you know, we'll get that better and sharper and things. And he said, well, bring it back to me in a few weeks when you're better, you know, whatever. So I had to sneak it out again a couple of weeks later <laughs> and show it to him again at six in the morning. And and again, and he said, yeah, yeah, that's better. You know, that's getting better. And I said, well, you know, we're still working on it and everything. He said, yeah, that that could be good. He said, well. Why don't you? And he started suggesting a few other things, so tiny little nuances and things. And and I thought, oh, I don't, I don't know. You know, it's obviously not going to go anywhere. So I went back to the cutting room, and the producer had found out that we were doing. It's not the producer, not the producer, because actually the producer was my partner. The the studio, the Hong the Hong Kong end of it and they'd found out that we'd shown, shown it to someone and it was suddenly a load of lawsuits and these things flying about and funny enough Jeffrey Katzenberg rang me up straight away and said quick just uh, just say you know we're we're old friends and I really want the film and for Disney and we could do a massive Disney release I just I think we're all too late for that you know the moment had passed really by then you know Bob Shea had come on really properly onto the film and he'd started seeing some stuff and they started getting interested in it. They weren't that interested in it at New Line. They didn't know what they had. It was just a, a deal that, you know, probably Disney could have paid them and bought them out of, but they realized, started realizing, and especially once we cut a trailer together and the trailers were going in the cinemas and people were screaming and standing up and kids were going crazy, they suddenly realized they had something much bigger than they thought they had. What exactly was on those 10 pages of script that you were trying to film as far as the, a, a different introduction? I can't actually remember. It's so it's 20 years ago. <laughs> That's <laughs> understandable. Yeah. I can't remember. It was just a much more graceful way in that led into the sewers and down into the turtles. There's a few scenes. There was a few different scenes, like three or four different scenes. There was other things. I think out in the countryside, there was more to do. There is one thing I remember. I had the book on tape of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles growing up. And one of the, th one of the scenes that was in that that I vividly remember my, my childish mind went, that's not in the movie. What is that doing here? Was uh, there's this one scene where they're sparring and Leonardo, trusting in the training with Splinter, turned the mask around so that he was blindfolded. And he told them to come at him, and they, they're like, we, we, you, you're blindfolded, you can't see it. And there's this this whole sparring scene that was in this book, but wasn't in the movie. And I, was that originally meant to be in there, or was that just something? Yeah, uh, yeah, I remember that scene. 
Yeah, I don't think we shot that, Ian. I think that was one of the scenes that we wanted to, we felt it would be stronger to have it. It was uh, one of those that, you know, went into the following week shooting that wasn't allowed. Right. Mm. There's there's actually a, a shot that shows up. It's really prominent in the original trailer for the film that has uh, the four turtle shells like bobbing up out of the water. Oh, uh, yeah. Is that part of the uh, the deleted intro sequence? Is that what that was? Yeah. And, that, and it didn't work because we've shot that. Whatever it was before and after that, we didn't shoot. It didn't work, you know, where it was in isolation. Mm. Except in the trailer. That was definitely part of the build-up. <laughs> does the original script you're talking about, is, does that still exist? Do we, are there also storyboard photos and, and behind-the-scenes footage that one day could be used for a special edition DVD or book? Yeah, I've got quite a lot of the uh, original storyboards. The original script, I don't know where that is, but... The Malcolm McLaren score, Nick and I, we found out that you did a commentary on a German edition of the film. And we've been, yeah. after hearing the rumors, were those rumors of a special edition in America substantiated at all? Or was that just fan buzz? I've never, ever been contacted by Warners to do any kind of special edition of it, hmm. which I was always surprised. And because and, I thought it was weird. And then I got a call from this German guy about three years ago. And he said, would you do a director's commentary? And I go, you know. They, and I said, yeah, sure. And he and he released it released it over there, really. I, d I don't know what... I, I suppose they felt there was no market for it. Show us what they know. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, they had one time, I remember, I thought about five years ago, there was a bunch of people had got a petition together to send to Warner saying, why not have a special edition? And, and either they don't read it. Funnily enough, I might be doing a production with, with Warner's. I've just been in there this week and I'm going back in next week to talk about a big production. And if I'm doing that there, then I'll, I'll bring it up again. Yes. Just... <laughs> Stoke the fires. <laughs> Nick and I listened to, to the commentary. We got the German DVD and we checked it out. And that was where we first heard about the Malcolm McLaren thing, which is great because uh, in the age of the internet, I was able to find the original trailer and I watched it and I thought, what is that amazing music that's on this trailer? By sheer coincidence, I, I'd already been a fan of Malcolm McLaren because of his album Duck Rock, but uh, I hadn't heard Waltz Darling and it showed up in a playlist because it's like, oh, you like Malcolm McLaren? Here's this song. And I heard House of the Blue Danube and I lost my mind. I was like, wow, serendipity. Like, here it is, the, the track from the Turtles trailer. And when I heard in the commentary that you were planning on making the uh, that sort of the music from Waltz Darling or that same idea of like classical music remixed as dance music as part of the score for the Turtles that was fascinating I was wondering what was the the plan with that exactly were you were you and Malcolm planning on readapting the works from Waltz Darling or doing a completely similar but separate project for the score yeah we were going to do something new I'd forgotten that was on the trailer that's right we gave it to the publicity people at the time because they want to know what sort of music we we're going to use and then Malcolm was going to come in and start properly you know making making pieces for the for the film i can't remember where were we gonna go we were even gonna get a bit of pistols in there i think we were gonna get pistols <laughs> because of danny because of being able to come from danny in that character we were able to you know go to we wanted to do a bit of anarchy it, so it was going to be pretty full-on it, it, you know it's going to be anarchy it wasn't going to be as sweet as it ended up i had a, three or four meetings with malcolm and he was all ready to do it when this went down where they were like not having it. How did you end up getting with John Dupree and how did that score come about? Well, that was, I wasn't really involved in that. That was all that last, you know, month or so of production where they were trying to brighten the film, you know, get the music that would be the most commercial for what's around. 
Huh. And uh, so it was really, you know, jumping into the charts and saying, you know, who have we got? And the music supervisor was just trying to find whoever was whoever was hot and would do it at the time and pull that together. And we had talked about a few of those guys where, you know, uh, quite through post, because I, we were talking about putting other tracks in besides McLaren was going to do the score, but we were talking about those particular tracks and we had talked about those guys, but I didn't actually ever you know, get involved in meeting them. And they did that very quickly, actually, funny enough. That was all kind of put together very quickly. But what, you know, obviously worked out pretty well in a lot of it, in a, in a lot of ways. And since we're talking about it, why don't we just cut away to Malcolm McLaren's House of the Blue Danube, the track that plays during the original Ninja Turtles trailer.
we read an interview, I can't remember what, what magazine it was in, it was an interview with Judith Hogue that was actually done at the time of the film, and she was talking about how, oh, she couldn't wait to reprise her role as April and so on and so forth, and that led Nick and I to wonder, were you ever approached about the follow-up film, or was there just a, a kind of, I guess, a classic Batman Returns reaction where it's like, this film's too dark, it's for it's supposed to be for children, Ugh. And they just didn't – they simply didn't talk to you. What happened with the sequel? With the sequel, I had the right, contractual right to first option oh, yeah. to direct it. And so they had to. Uh, they had to come to me, but they weren't too happy at coming to me with it. And they just said, it's got to be brighter and more colorful. And obviously, I said, thank you very much. I'm not – you know, I've done mine version i'm not i'm not going to do a version now that's a watered down more junior <laughs> more kiddie version of what we've done and i also felt i'd done it you know i'd spent a year and a half on it more than a year and a half on it and to do it okay it would have been a bit it was a bigger budget and it was a, a chance to get a few things more right but it wasn't definitely was not enough to for me to do it there weren't enough reasons to do it there was plenty of reasons not to do it mm. Well, I've got a I've got a, a gushy, very like nerdy question. This is really just gratuitous fan oriented question. Uh, <laughs> if you did do a second film, what would you have done? Wow, God, I'd have to. That's an impossible answer. I'd have to put myself back in that. Time. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to go back in time. I'd have to do Back to the Future, and and, and and I'm sure we talked about it on the set. I remember we were you know constantly saying, Hey, next one, we're gonna do this and. In a way, I think the second one I'd like to have done was uh, the third one that was Feudal Japan, was it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, in a way, that I would have loved to have taken the challenge up of that, of, of doing something, shooting something in, uh, in the Far East that takes them out there and uncover something from Splinter's past. That would have been, yeah, that would have been uh, an interesting move. But I, I'm not sure that was the one that we were, were aiming for when we were probably talking about it on the set. Well, as a as a reader of the comics, I, actually, the one thing that's really untraversed by most incarnations of turtles outside their like uh, more uh, approachable mediums like animation and so on, how basically the next the next arc in the turtle story is Utrams and Triceratons and travel to other planets. That's obviously like massive budget constraints and and all kinds of stuff. Was that was any of that hard hard sci-fi elements something that you would have ever considered putting in the film? Because it's something that every most other people who touch the films try to avoid. I'm more a fan of things that stay a bit a bit closer and a bit more personal and a bit more down to earth. Hmm. You know, to take them into space doesn't mean it's going to be any better. And uh, I think yeah. you then lose, you lose the humor. I mean, there's nothing better. There's nothing stronger when I read the comic than that scene where this pizza delivery guy from Domino's comes up and, <laughs> and tries to slip a, you know, a pizza down some grating in, in the middle of a New York street. You'd be so far removed from that humor, you'd have to find it in other ways. But, it, you know, it's that fish-out-of-water story which makes those things work so well. And if you put them in out of space, then there's plenty of aliens up there, and, and you're, uh, they're not. They're no longer. They're, you know, it's another, it's another thing. And uh, so I don't think I would have done that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's only right that we mention that you're perhaps the most prolific music video director ever. We've been talking about Turtles so much, it's not necessarily the right time to bring it up. <laughs> you know, Billie Jean, Money for Nothing, Take On Me, and uh, uh, She Blinded Me with Science, a slew of other... Uh, uh, I didn't do that one. Really? Wikipedia's wrong. Uh, Wikipedia lied to me. I know, they do. They, I, I'm always credited with that, but I think that was because Thomas Dolby directed it himself. I think at the time, maybe he wasn't allowed to, so... 
someone at the company. He did it through our company, but I didn't direct. <laughs> it's like, oh, weird. yeah, Steve did it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're going to go fix Wikipedia after this. <laughs> yeah. Um, it needs, I, I keep meaning to fix it. There's about, I'm credited with about 15 different videos that aren't true. And there's, about, there's at least another 30 or so. From that list, I saw that list. Of 80 videos, I've done many more than that, and yeah, one day I'll get it together to correct it. Being a prolific music video director is kind of a tough thing because there's no good source of for people seeing like what exactly you've been attributed to. I've never found any like website. It's like on a director to director basis, but IMDb doesn't necessarily list all the videos that people have done. There's there's always like nods to things like video collections and so on. But I remember the first time that I saw the Billie Jean music video, and my mind was nothing short of blown. And hmm. uh, just the the kind of weird magical reality, and it's on a set, but it's still it's kind of like many ways like a comic book the the way it looks and well now i'm just i'm just gushing right now but uh <laughs> oh, um, that's cool <laughs> you can carry on gushing well once after the the 80s generate the core 80s generation of videos people stop the credits for steve Barron are not easy to come by and i was wondering do you continue to make music videos and if so what are some of your favorites that you've made over the last 20 years you know i stopped doing them early 90s because i know i noticed because i didn't i didn't make a video for 14 years until about a year before last i did a it's almost not a video but it was just like a goodbye for our i did two this year there's little low budget things that that were just for one was for a show that i'm working on but we uh, got the band to do the music, and in return, I did a, a, a video for them, which are for the Mummers, a band called the Mummers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other one I just did for a guy who's a good friend of mine who'd just done all the music on Treasure Island. He's called Ant Gain, and his band's called The Hours, and he's supporting Noel Gallagher at the moment. And oh, cool. he just asked me to go in and shoot a video for him, which I did, and that's sort of out next week. But it's a little kind of little low budgety things but they were fun to do there was a whole period i just didn't do any videos for a long long time and that was partly because videos changed and partly because i was into drama and, and no one was asking me to do videos so that naivety we had at that in the early 80s making those videos was what made them so good and made the bad ones so bad and, and it, was, uh, it was all nobody knew anything and everybody was guessing and it was all new frontier new adventure it made the space for for things that that have stayed because they are of a particular time is sort of thing you you wouldn't do again even if you did it would not feel right now i want to ask you about treasure island then from what little i've seen about it it's a television film made in the uk and it's got a, a really phenomenal cast. It's got Eddie Izzard as uh, Long John Silver, Elijah Wood, Philip Gleinster, who plays the Gov in Life on Mars and Ashes to Ashes, uh, Donald Sutherland. And then the star is, or one of the main stars, Jim Hawkins. The Jim Hawkins of the film is uh, Toby Regbo, who played young Dumbledore in one of the recent Harry Potters. Yeah. What, what can you tell us about this project? I, I know next to nothing. I've seen, I haven't seen much on, online about it. Really, I mean, it's an amazing novel. Robert Louis Stevenson It's one of the classics of all time. It's been made many times as a movie, many times as a TV movie. Um, this guy in the UK came along and just said, do you want to do something you know, that's really sort of pushes what's been done before and is more muscular, testosterone-driven? And do you want to do... You know, something that's brave and, and looks 
powerful and and it just sounded like a great brief on a fantastic story the definitive version i don't think has been done and I, we were hoping you know i got together with eddie Izzard, who i love he and i both wanted to do something that was an attempt at making a definitive version for a new generation it's uh, three hours long two it plays over two nights in london it plays i mean in england it plays january 1st and january 2nd uh, on prime time on sky then it comes to america at the moment, it's on sci-fi, I believe, and then it will go. It's basically been sold in everywhere in the world. It's really doing very well as a pre-buy television thing. That's that's um, great. I had no idea it was coming out so soon. That's really fantastic. Yeah, we're just about done. We're literally putting the last couple of bits in, and that's it. All, all graded, all all music, everything's finished. And uh, to work with a cast like that was such a, a delight. So many good, professional, brilliant actors. Probably the best best cast I've ever worked with. It really shows that I think with the performances and things. Yeah, I'm kind of moving back to TV really. Just to television has changed so much. It's uh, it's become it's joined so closely with uh, with film. TV things are so well written. They're so well produced. They're so well acted that I I think you know TV is the new movie in a lot of ways. We'll never you, you know lose the the big event movies, but the uh, you know for your regular digestion to, to, to get the quality that's coming out now I think is uh, is very exciting do you have any projects on the horizon that you could talk about briefly I can't yet actually they're, they're all just you know they're going to be in the next month or two mm. we'll see which one is the forerunner and, and if it's announced there's one at Warner's I'm very excited about which is a movie actually but it's not ready to announce yet I think it could be great Really cool. I think a lot of people might not realize this, but you are actually responsible for a trio of uh, Hallmark-produced television films that were all pretty big deals, such as Merlin with Sam Neill. I know that a lot of people love that film. They don't necessarily know that that it's you who's attributed to it. And then uh, Dreamkeeper and Arabian Nights, and then now Treasure Island, a similar format. What draws me there to those that format, where all of those are three hours, all of those are two parts, all of those are two 90-minute films, and I think each of them as well... Whereas in a movie, you, you get into a development situation where you've got a script and you've got to fit it into two hours and every little last moment of it has got to be right on the story and, and you know, can't, can't be extraneous. You can't go off and, and be, you know, and play with other areas or other characters because you haven't got time. Mm-hmm. With a three-hour format, you really have this extra time to be able to go on these detours to, to really look at nuances of other relationships and things and it just is a, a more comfortable format and a great one for a director i mean it's hard because you're doing two 90 minutes it's like you're doing two movies and you're doing it roughly for the price of one and uh, <laughs> you know you, you work like crazy on them and then they need the finish of film i mean they have to have the finish of uh, a movie you know for the for, for the scale but they are attractive to do as a as a, for a director uh, and in a lot of ways, a little more attractive than a movie. I mean, you know, the right movie, obviously, is, is, is fantastic, but it is great to have that extra time. And, and also, you really have much less interference as well. I mean, it's the TV thing. It, it, it just kind of let you get on with it. That's a big attraction. Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. It's been really, really incredible. 
pleasure pleasure it's been really nice thank you guys for being fans and love to anytime you want to find out what i can remember which isn't a lot so you, you know just <laughs> <laughs> i'll take you up on that steve <laughs> thanks you guys see you thank then you. Take care. thank you bye bye all right what you got for us hex since Steve directed Take On Me, I decided to bring out one of my favorite covers of Take On Me. This is Chip Tots from their album Chip Goes Pop. This is their track Take On Lover, which is a bit of a medley as well. Enjoy. Enjoy.
Welcome back. What you just listened to was by Brandon Strader. It's a, an OC <laughs> remix release. It was released on 11.11.11, and it is a Skyrim remix. It was oh, remi- hell yeah. uh, released the same day as the album, and it's a pretty epic track for an epic game and mm-hmm. uh, epic remix. It was enjoyable, and you can, you can go download it. It's all OC remix tracks. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's that epic. Shut up, I, all I saw, you. All I saw was you killing an elk. That's all <laughs> Colin is being really skeptical towards Skyrim based entirely on Hex's gameplay decisions, which I feel is unfair. I I played a little Skyrim. I'm in the mind of my orc. I got this orc character, and I'm, I'm ready to create this character that I first made back in when I started playing third edition, Unglar Master of Blades, and I'm ready to just go and kill everything, except I mess up. In naming him. Yeah, what's his name, Hex? Prisoner. <laughs> that is the suggested name. And so now I, not, I have... That is not the suggested name. That is basically enter your name is right. what that is. Right. Your, your name is enter your name, Hex. I was trying to do Hex. erase. I was trying to do erase <laughs> and it selected it. And I'm like, what the hell? And so immediately I had to rework how who my character is. And I kind of went this Red 13 mindset of... Is your name? What's your name? Uh, Red Thirteen will do. So he's like, "What's your name, prisoner?" Uh, might as well call me prisoner. It doesn't matter anymore because my entire goddamn tribe is dead. I'm the last orc of of my clan. So or, that's his mindset. And so, so, so being the last orc of his clan, all it, he does is go and hunt elk. No, he would prefer Not to. He would with prefer an arrow. He would, but with <laughs> his mace. He I tried chases, bow and arrow. I tried bow and arrow, and I'm so horrible at it. I'm the horrible. Land of Skyrim, and just <laughs> he hits them with this. Um, no, his his dream job, his dream life is just be a as, pedicurist. No, it's to be a blacksmith. That's all he wants to do. He the moment sounds like you can use my blacksmith stuff, and the first time I was like, oh, I can. Like, is kind of his response. And so I make a lot of stuff and I have a lot of fun. I'm like, I just want a blacksmith now. That's what I want. That is, that is, that is prisoner's goal in life. You get anywhere. <laughs> it's, gonna, it's like playing Red Dead Redemption being like, I sure do love ranching. I ain't going to do nothing but ranching. I sure, hell, I love ranching so much. I ain't going to eat nothing but ranch dressing. <laughs> Precisely. That is. I tell you what, boy, I got all the fixings, but they be smothered in ranch dressing. <laughs> That is uh, Texas. <laughs> that is prisoner's lot in life. That is all he wants. He wants to uh, be a blacksmith. Mm. Well, uh, well, look forward to a review of Skyrim. <laughs> yeah, we're 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 gonna talk about Skyrim in the future, and we're not from mis- more exciting players than me. <laughs> yeah, we're, gonna, we're we're I'm playing as my D and D character Jamela Dalla Egbert III. That was a fan request. Normally, I play as a Khajiit, but hey, I decided to go Argonian this time. Well, you went on Nerdy Show Live. Yeah, where you were streaming. I watch Brandon Game actually. Watch Brandon. Yeah. So you were on Watch Brandon Game, and you were streaming. Streaming Skyrim, yeah. So if you want to check out Brandon or I playing Skyrim at WatchBrandonGame.com. Yeah. So see, yeah, watch. check us out on Facebook and Twitter, and they always send out uh, yeah notifications well, when you're gonna when uh, you guys are gonna be on. Right? As, yeah, as far as no- notifications go, we we tweet and post to the forums. Ah, uh, um, okay. Typically, Brandon just doesn't do Facebook, and that's you know. Okay. Well, if you happen to be on Facebook, go ahead and like Nerdy Show. <laughs> Why not? Do it. It couldn't yeah. hurt, right? And Dungeons and Doritos. Yeah, yeah we dare you. <laughs> and Flame On. Yeah, we dare you. And, and the real congregation. And the real congregation. <laughs> yeah, we and the, dare you. The nerdy show family of shows. Yeah. Um, we if if Facebook would let us, we'd just have one big like button. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but they don't. Jerks. <laughs> we opened with saying this is a very cinematic episode of Nerdy Show. Well, we've got a very cinematic donation drive going on. We're a donation-funded podcast. If this is the first time you're listening to us. We do everything we do strictly via donation. We're like PBS, but with cuss words. Fuck yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the only way that we can survive is by generous donations, but we want everybody to have a good time while they're donating to us. We want to have, you know, everybody have a reason to donate, not just because we're giving you all this quality free podcasting and every all the other stuff we do. But we want to make um, it a game as well. Yeah. Uh, one, you can donate, and if you donate, you get some cool free stuff in your email, some exclusive sketches and iPhone backgrounds and some audio and so on. And you can also play a little game. We do a donation drive every month, and this month we're doing a uh, movie marathon donation drive. The donation drive is to curate a movie marathon where we're going to live stream us watching a set of films. If the film is public domain, we can show the film, and if not, then it's basically a live commentary track, and we'll be queuing it up with time codes so everybody can watch it along with us. These are basically movie marathons that all have a theme. You can donate, you can suggest a movie marathon, you go to the forums, you uh, tell us what kind of movie marathon it is, we can, you can either give us a, a broad subject and have us interpret your subject, or you can tell us very specifically what it is we're going to watch. And um, the way it works is people can sponsor the categories. Did you did you do. get that wave of eighties nineties obscure comic? I did. We very we were very recently um, had a topic started, which is a semi obscure eighties and nineties comic movies, which Ninja Turtles isn't a part of because it's not it's obscure. Not obscure. <laughs> I'm sad that it doesn't count. Uh, yeah, I don't just give me an excuse to watch it again. Just give me one. <laughs> I wish you go watch it after we this. Probably like should. That... We'll watch the German one in German. Sweet. I, With I'm... commentary. Little fun fact yeah, about whoa, the, the original uh, <laughs> German cut, or maybe just the European cut. In general of the film is that one the europe has a big thing or had a big thing about nunchucks as being an ultra violent weapon you couldn't show so michelangelo's use of nunchucks is completely subtracted from the film he'll be holding them but he won't be using them and also the dubbing to the soundtrack includes three stooges cartoon style sound effects like like just like nonsense garbage sound effects it is ruined the film is completely with now this dvd kudos to the guy who commissioned steve Barron for the commentary and everything it's completely restored but you can check out the original audio track if i remember correctly and and see this awful audio dub in german it's so, do yourself a favor and so do so that whole scene with a fellow chucker like that's yeah that's completely that's completely uh, completely re-edited yeah Aww. That was Hex's favorite. And then thing. that was and, one of them. <laughs> the chuck off. And like and when, when the turtles when the turtles jump, it's like, <laughs> man, it's ridiculous. Not to be confused with another Russian. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so the sorry, uh, mad tangent. But we got it with the donation drive we got going on. We got some subjects already in. And you can still you can you pitch a new one, and if people like it, they'll sponsor it or you know do whatever. But it's it's all about like you know having a great idea, having the fans come in and support you and all that jazz. Backing up a little bit, semi obscure eighties nineties comic movies like the aborted Fantastic Four film, for example, oh, um, which you, which I mean, well, it was filmed, but it was never released, and you can find it on the internet. We'll so probably watch that. Yeah, things that weren't necessarily recognized as comic films, such as The Rocketeer, which is a fantastic Love comic that film. Movie. So you would can, that count? Is that obscure enough? Yeah. Because as a comic film, it's not recognized as a comic mm. film. You see, it's it's a slight loophole, but that Rocketeer is still really good. 
I mean, he's got Timothy Dalton. Oh, no, I love it. I, by no means am I arguing okay, that good. movie. It's I love Timothy that movie. Yeah, so there's, there's... I was like, is that obscure enough? But not, is that good? Well, like, it, go, it goes both ways in this, this topic. It's both obscure, as in, like, few people know about it, and then obscure, as in its relationship to its source material. I, I'm down with that. Usually discussions about all these, as soon as they're posted to the forums, not only is there the initial posting of what the topic is, but people are adding things, suggesting things, cha- making changes. It's pretty fun. The other one we got leading the charge is the Gundam Marathon. Um, who will survive no one i should give props to everybody who sponsored these so far comic books uh started by sage zero then sponsored by dumpstat treble 252 and Stuart edney and then uh, gundam who will survive started by casa baloo sponsored by gundam king and satchel one of course gundam has a, a legacy of material television film all kinds of stuff and they are actually creating an itinerary for us to uh, to actually uh, get get some high points basically because there's cool. we're not going to tackle any one gundam thing in the in the 12 hours that max that we we allot ourselves for these i've never seen a single gundam me neither i have i saw a few i had friends back in high school that were really obsessed with it and like you need to watch all of it i'm like uh, how long will that take? Well, what are you doing this entire summer? <laughs> the, oh what are you doing God. for the rest of your life? <laughs> also in the donation drive, we have Nev the Derange suggested Park Chan Wok's Vengeance Trilogy, which is uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, Old Boy, and Lady Vengeance, all awesome films. Totally cool, super brutal. And then he suggested another film, I can't remember off the top of my head, but something else to like kind of cool down from all that. Barry I suggested Propaganda Films, and Fussface gave us a uh, three suggestions, all of which are surprisingly unroosevelted, unsponsored. Ozploitation Film Fest, amazing, amazing, crazy, super violent, super strange, Australian films, films from outer space, with that in the uh, in the title, and uh, films that voyage to or of. I mean, really, uh, really neat topics. So someone should show that some love. It can, you know, the uh, yeah. The... Where's the Roosevelt sniper? I haven't seen the Roosevelt sniper on. I guess he doesn't have an opinion this month. His defeat last month left uh, him wilted. He got he got, he, he got Roosevelt nuked, right? Yeah, he got Roosevelt. Oh nuked. my gosh, did he ever? Mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm still looking to see if Mar Maron. Maron is gonna <laughs> Roosevelt <laughs> join join on in the fun Maron Ma- Colin and Maron have a, a thing I don't know what it is I don't really understand it but they have a thing well basically Colin is a jerk to everyone <laughs> and he found a reason to make fun of Maron and so he's just gonna keep on doing that until Maron cries himself to sleep Maron <laughs> Wow, um, I got some. I got some uh, shoutouts in the, that were included with with donate with the donations oh, from okay. from a couple guys. Is any from Maura? No, sir. No, sir. We we do have a, You're a, such an asshole. a mistake that was made. Stuart Edney wants to point out that he is British and not an Aussie. I don't really remember where we made the screw up, but we did. We apologize. He wants to back the '80s, '90s semi-obscure comic book films only because the Rocketeer needs some love. Yes. Nice. Treble252 says, I'd like to add this donation to the semi-obscure 80s, 90s comic movies. I love the show and the work you guys put into it. It is a great community that's grown around the podcast, and I'm really glad to have found it. I eagerly await the movie marathon and whatever other awesome projects y'all have coming up. Thank you. Yay, thank well, you. Yeah, thank you, Treble252. Yeah. You guys you guys are awesome, and you're, you're how, you make us possible. That's right. With your money and your love. Yes. Both things are a form of currency. That's right. <laughs> but we can only spend your money. All the donation drives go into uh, helping to keep the show going, keep producing the show, pay for server space, pay for like uh, awesome projects like our Minecraft server, and uh, and so on and so forth. And like, the hookers. And so many hookers. Oh! We, yeah, yeah. we have tons of projects that we have in mind. And tons of to, prostitutes. We, and prostitutes. <laughs> 
We have tons of those in mind. Yeah, shovels we do. to bury them. We we you know with the end of the year up, it's always a tough time to get everything together with all everybody like familial obligations and uh, and so on and so forth. We've got a lot of kettles on the boil. Well, yes. boiling, ready to boil over. In fact, but yes, uh, we a just a lot of uh, kettles on the boil. Yeah. Yeah, so we're... 2012 uh, is going to be pretty awesome. For oh, my gosh. Okay, 2012 is going to be insane. Now let me regale you guys with a story tonight. It's about a very unusual fan film, a very unusual pro-grade fan film from 1994. Mm. I just found out about this recently, and it kind of blew my mind. This is Eric Fleming's 1994 Silver Surfer fan film. Oh, I've mm. heard about this. You can watch it online. I highly recommend checking this out. Let me place this for you in time. Terminator 2 had just started to get like the promotion no, train I know rolling. Where this is going. Just it had just started, and at the same, and then boom, this fan film comes out, and it actually gets shown to studios and so on and so forth. They created a silver CGI person more complex than T1000. Whoa! With a budget of practically nothing in in cinema terms. Wow! Let me regale Does you. Does he surf? He does, in fact, surf. Yes, he surfs down from the sky, and it's a real. It's a short film. It has practically no plot. It's really stupid. It's and just that's what, to show off. It's 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 a it's a demonstration. But it was originally just going to be a technical demonstration, but they actually decided to give it this kind of like weird like bullying plot and so on. What happens is uh, there's like this. You got this whole like. Uh, some kind of people monitoring space like a government facility and they see a thing coming in so fast and what's going on and then you see this kid being bullied he has a, a, a T-800 doll and it was a, a nod because that obviously we're filming these live, live action sequences they were aware that there was going to be a comparison there so and then kids getting bullied Silver Surfer flies down and he's basically like yo kids don't bully this kid and then he flies away I mean that's it it's not anything special in those terms however the story of how it was pulled off the story of how far these guys got and everything that they, they accomplished as a fan film director is actually so similar to what's happening now with fan films but there was no comparison until very recently wow so here's here's how it went down the abyss had come out and that was the as far as like a CGI person thing. That was the first one. That was the, that was the first time, and it was and like computer animated objects were still really limited. Um, Tron, Last Starfighter, stuff like that. Mm. Uh, and and in, in the abyss, this character was only on screen for like a few seconds. Right, like, but it was tops. so and, perfect. Yeah, and oh, it, yeah. and it had cost it had cost something along the lines of five hundred thousand dollars for six seconds. Right. So yeah. That was not not a feasible sort of thing. These guys went to USC. They had some friends who worked at the Creature Shop Special Effects House. They got they built a two foot high model of the Silver Surfer. They created their own like unique spin on the design. Had it digitized, and then at USC they had access to a very powerful computer which could build skeletons for animation around the digitized form. And so basically they were in a unique situation. Uh, this computer was in fact the this kind of computer that would or the software was the kind was the software that would eventually be used in Jurassic Park. Oh, cool. It was a definitely a right place, right time kind of thing, but also the right people with the right minds to, to get this done. So they flew up to New York, and they went to Marvel. And they, they also met with ILM as well, and they, they basically said, we're going to do this. We want to make a Silver Surfer thing. We want to do a demo. We want to have this character come to life. And they said, it's impossible to do a Silver Surfer movie. That's totally ridiculous. You are completely wasting your time. To- They're right. It is impossible to make a Silver Surfer movie. Yeah, and it it's probably still can't make it. Yeah, and only only because of the context, you know. No, I know. But I'm um, just saying they still can't make a Silver Surfer movie. Yeah. Whatever, well, like this is awesome. They, they, awesome. Well, I'm saying <laughs> the one that happened didn't exist. No, oh, yeah. it didn't it, they um, didn't no. happen. That was the I'm I'm one of the biggest Fantastic Four fans out there and I fucking hate that movie so much. Voiced by Morpheus. Oh. 
my rage voiced by Morpheus. <laughs> Jeez, guys. Marvel said, hey, we'll give you permission, but you're just wasting your time. <laughs> that's, that's actually what happened. And then they had to contact uh, Constantin, which is a German film company, because they own the rights to the Fantastic Four due to the Fantastic Four film that I just previously mentioned. Oh, and, man. And, and as you know from the recent Fantastic Four film, which you claim didn't happen, the rights to Silver Surfer and Galactus are intertwined with the Fantastic Four rights. So they had to get permission from that company. And they basically said the same thing. They were like, oh, well, sure, you're not going to be able to pull it off. So whatever. But in German. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Quentin Tarantino had actually created a Silver Surfer script and been turned away previously. They were like, well, this is bullshit. You can't. uh, This is just after Reservoir Dogs. So he wasn't exactly. He wasn't Quentin Tarantino yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it was still like. He was still a good director. They were still like, come on. You know, come on, like that. That's how are you gonna? Right. How are you gonna make a Silver Surfer movie? Right. So, so he wrote the bullying scene. That makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> so since everybody was telling that like it was they couldn't do it, they thought, well, we're gonna we'll make a full a full short out of it. Yeah. They spent less than three thousand dollars to make this thing. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. And they made this thing and they showed it around and everybody's jaws dropped. T2 and what people were seeing of it was impressing the hell out of people. And these guys had done what cost them like millions of dollars for next to nothing. Right. So. Uh, and, and how long? How long is it? It's it's a short thing. It's like five minutes tops. This is based off of a Quentin Tarantino film. No, 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 no. It's that bullying scene. No, no, no. God damn it! I don't understand. Quentin Tarantino actually just an example of people being like, you can't make a Silver Surfer film. Quentin Tarantino at the time, recently, similar to this event, had actually come in and said, hey, I've got a a Silver Surfer film I want to make, and they said no. They said stupid. Oh. They, they made the film, and it, it freaked everybody out. They, they met with Stan Lee, got shown to him in a private theater in L.A. They started talking with everybody. They started getting phone calls. They got they got phone calls from every, like, major studio. Every major a- agency was like, oh, my God. They, people, they said people who didn't have any kind of clue who Silver Surfer was and just assumed that they owned the rights to the character uh, were, <laughs> were, were, ta- were talking with them about making the Silver Surfer film. Wow. Um, just because they were so impressed with this, this short. Yeah, they're like, we got to do this. And, um, in fact, Oliver Stone, was calling asking to direct it wow and then and then everything just died off like uh they said overnight this is a quote overnight they totally blew us off it's suddenly an a-list project and they have to bring in an a-list writer and an a-list director and that's really just how hollywood works we should have signed a deal ahead of time but we were just too young and naive your word is no good in hollywood all that matters is a signed piece of paper so wow it just they uh the the hype got built up uh no one owed them anything and it was you know then it, it dissipated then then they just left in arguments forever. But these guys, these guys made out okay. They ended up in the industry. One of them ended up being the head of visual effects at Sony slash High Definition. Others, you know, like done stuff like uh, work with Nickelodeon. One of them even actually co-wrote the script for True Lies Two, which sadly never happened. But mm. but you know was on the slate for a while there. Oh. Uh, yeah, your lead up for that made me sound made, made it sound like you were gonna like oh yeah they made it into into the industry and one of them is J J Abrams. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. No. But <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so there there you go. I mean, it's a uh, sorry, it was a very complicated story to tell, but it's a very It's a cool story. It's a strange little story and and yeah, like a very unique fan film experience. It's really uh, really 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 coming around. So um, basically, if you want to get into the film industry and you don't have any kind of connections whatsoever, one of the ways to get into the film industry is to make a fan film. Yeah, make a fan film. Take something that someone really really would love to sell to audiences because it has some kind of brand recognition and I mean this is that's basically the moral of everything that's, you know we've, we've we've talked about here with the fan films is you know take something that people are into already has popularity if you've got talent if you've got skill and you can translate that into onto the screen it's a wonderful gateway into making your own your own film projects and working in the business and uh, and it's also a boon to nerds yeah. really to, to fans of of, uh, of other the other things you know um to see a cool Batman film, the likes of which you would never see mm-hmm. produced by a major studio. Yeah. So get on um, it, listeners. Yeah, you you are the future. Well, we all are the future. Well, we can't do anything else. We're doing this now. Yeah, we're, we we've, are, we've I, already put our hat in. Our hands are tied. Yeah. <laughs> so it's up to you guys. Yeah. Do it. Do it. Let us live vicariously through you. Yeah, and then and then send us money. And then we'll because we gave you the the gumption. And then we'll interview you and make you famous. It's yeah. We can do that. <laughs> Trust us. <laughs> We won't write it down on paper, though. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this has been a, this has been a long one, but we want to keep having these discussions with uh, both filmmakers and and cre- creators responsible for actually bringing properties to the screen, and then young creators who are bringing the, who are doing their own interpretations of licensed property, making awesome. making pro grade fan yeah. films. Like I said, uh, all the links to all the fan films that we've discussed and, and all the stuff we've discussed, all the music we've listened to are on this episode page over at nerdyshow.com. Yeah. Uh, you can check it all out there. Yeah. You can find out how to donate to us if you wanna if you wanna play along with the movie movie marathon and all yeah. that. So um yeah. Yeah. What you got to play us out, Hex? Yeah. What I have is a cold and lonely world. That's the shitty note to go out on. Yeah, no, it's it's a beautiful remix actually. It's uh, the world music from Chrono Cross oh. by DJ Cutman, and he was experimenting, and it's it's it sounds so sad and forlorn, but it's really beautiful. And and for this uh, episode on fan love, I thought it'd be a, a nice a nice thing to close on. Yeah, I like that track. I want to hear this remix. Okay, so thank you so much. For listening to this very cinematic episode of Nerdy Show. <laughs> I would say it's a radical episode. Totally radical! 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 <laughs> radical! Radical! <laughs> Bye, I'm Hex. I'm Cap. And I'm Colin. Enjoy.
This is Christopher Lambert. I want to thank you for listening to this week's episode of Nerdy Show. Nerdy Show is brought to you by a comic shop, Nerdapalooza, and the Oviedo branch of Play and Trade. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to send them to info at nerdyshow.com. You can subscribe to all Nerdy Show podcasts via the iTunes store. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Nerdy Show or friend us on Facebook. <laughs> if you enjoyed what you heard, support Nerdy Show by telling a friend, or better yet, giving your money by visiting the Nerdy Show, picking up a t-shirt, donate directly to the Nerdy Show for cool, nerdy perks. These guys know how to fight the soldiers of Outworld. They didn't ask you to come back to do Mortal Kombat 2. I'm not quite sure why. I would have done it for free. I don't know why they asked James Remar to play Raiden in Mortal Kombat 2 Annihilation. Hey, I stole your car from the party. Get over it. How about that, huh? Wow. Lots of questions answered. Holy monkey. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> quote Michelangelo. Uh, Nick, I'm going to share with you the note I, I, I wrote down and shared with Colin and Cap at the very beginning of the interview. It said, I'm totally nerding out over talking to Steve Barron. Yeah, I can't believe it. <laughs> a nice Should we harmonize? Uh, uh, no, you're flat. You're flat. God, you're so flat. Uh, uh, we are never going to make it in I Fight Dragons with this attitude. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 